everyone, and welcome to episode 139 of Connectivity. I'm Scott Thompson. Uh, today we have two regular segments for you and then a bonus segment. Uh, kicking the show off, myself, Alex, and Zach uh, sit down to answer your listener mail. We've got questions about the future of E3, our favorite Game Boy ever, and the problem with making games focused on multiplayer. After that, Neil, Alex, Zach, and Andy have a segment all about Shovel Knight, the recently released Wii U and 3DS indie game. And after the outro, myself and Johnny have another space bonus segment. Enjoy. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this segment of Connectivity. I am Scott Thompson. Uh, today, I'm joined by Zach Miller. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that was a little half-hearted. You, usually, you get a, give it a little bit more, Zach. I'm a little no. Okay, that's better. And uh, Alex Kalafi. Hey, everybody. Oh, God, there we go. <laughs> Nailed it. You have all Zach's energy. Um... And today we are going to be doing a listener mail segment. Um, we got a ton of listener mail over the past, oh, I don't know, month or so. Um, we got more after E3, but things have just been kind of crazy and we haven't had a chance to get to it. But today is the day we get to it. Um, so, you know, how, how's everyone doing before we jump into mail? You, you guys good? How's everyone doing? It's been raining for the last three days. Gaben's been draining my wallet and the Steam sale. Yeah, the Steam sale, you know, it hasn't been, like, as great as other years, but I do see at least kind of one thing every day that I think about buying. I haven't bought anything apart from Dark Souls 2, which we'll talk about another time, but, um... Yeah. It's just you own more and more of uh, the Steam PC collection every single year, and then, like, Fallout 3 going on sale can only be exciting so many times before yeah. you already own every Fallout game. Thanks yeah, to exactly. Thanks uh, bundle sales that go on. Now and again. I bought the, I bought Dishonored like a year ago and haven't even touched it. And now it's um, on sale again for the exact same price. Yep, yep. <laughs> so until I see it for a lower price, I won't feel bad. It hasn't it hasn't dropped below five dollars, which is what I bought it at last year. So wow, I don't feel bad. Yeah, Steam's awesome. Yeah, I'm discovering that myself. Well, yeah, because if you're going into these sales for the first time, like, oh my goodness, you are gonna have a good time this week. But if you're going into it for the first, for the third or fourth time, especially after a couple of winter sales, like sometimes that stuff just kind of repeats. Yeah, you'll see that. Yeah, quite a bit. And then it, it's kind of hard because most of the time, like new games won't really drastically go on sale. Every now and then you might like see like something like 15% off, which amounts to what, like five dollars or something. Yeah. Um, which is which is okay, but yeah, so it kind of gets stuck in that cycle where it's all just the same stuff. Um, or stuff you don't care about. Like, they had a, a pretty good deal on getting all of um, Season 2 of Walking Dead, uh, but that wouldn't matter to you because you're crazy. So, twelve forty nine is a good price for that. Wolf Among Us is also 8 bucks. That is a pretty good series, too. Yep. Yeah, I haven't tried that one, um, but I do hear good things. So, okay, good. Nice, nice little banter. So we'll jump into the mail now. Um, these first three are all about E3. They kind of touch the same point, so I think... I'm going to go ahead and read them all now, and then we'll just respond in general, because, yeah, it's all um, it's all pretty much related. So here we go. This first one's a little long, but we'll, we'll get through it. Um, this is from Wilson Robinson. He says, After the digital event, developer roundtables, and countless hours of interviews and impressions, E3 has finally come to a close. It often takes a few days of post-E3 decompression for me to fully formulate my opinion of Nintendo's overall showing. I have finally reached that point for E3 2014, and I must profess I haven't felt this full of Nintendo bliss in quite a while. 
While their core E3 presentation wasn't their strongest in history, it still makes a strong case for top 5. What really sets this year apart for me, however, is the continuous feed of news and gameplay throughout the entire show. This is no better exemplified than the, with Treehouse Live. The constant IV drip of interviews and gameplay made me exponentially more excited for many of the newly announced titles that I would have been, uh, than I would have been with nothing uh, to go on but a trailer. I just find it so much easier to feel Nintendo's own enthusiasm about their new games than I ever have before. Are you guys feeling as enthused about Nintendo as I am right now? If not, at what point is the company, uh, at what point in the company's history have you felt the most optimistic about them? I don't mean to insinuate that this is the most excited I've been about the, this company ever, but it's pretty darn close. It wasn't a perfect showing. I wasn't blown away by Miyamoto's projects. There weren't, they were a little light on 3DS announcements, and the third-party support is still pretty abysmal. Maybe next week I'll care. This week I don't. So there's that. Uh, the next one is from Admin. It says. Nintendo is hosting another digital event for E3. Holy shit. Uh, <laughs> sorry, that's awesome. The interwebs seem to be reacting much better this time. Uh, is this the end of the E3 press conference? No offense, but a growing number of fans get Nintendo news directly from Nintendo, and press events are for well press. The press can still recap web events and give very important hands-on impressions of games for gamers that are not invited. How long do you think Microsoft and Sony will continue to host expensive events for a handful of gamers? Uh, do you guys go to E3 personally? Will you miss the Nintendo Live events? Does the Nintendo booth make up for it uh, to the attendees? Uh, and then this last one about E3 is from Remus, uh, who is Razor Kid on the forums. Uh, he says, uh, what's up, Connectivity Crew? This is the first year in ages that I've enjoyed an E3 so thoroughly because of Nintendo and the first where I can come to almost understand the fatigue one may feel while covering games on the show floor because I've been absolutely glued to the Treehouse feed every day since it started. Sony Microsoft may have had a solid, may have had solid press conferences, but what they initially presented has been totally dominated by Nintendo's own relentless coverage of their own stuff to me. Do you think the success of Nintendo's E3 strategy will eventually lead the other two platform holders to abandon the live conference format and do something similar by the time this generation is over? Uh, I want to write more, but I don't want to be cut off, uh, so thanks for reading this. <laughs> so let's tackle this uh, in a couple waves. Before we talk about sort of the future of the, uh, the E3 conference, uh, let's talk a little bit about what Wilson addressed, and that's, I guess, sort of hype for Nintendo. Um, now that we're about two weeks removed, do you guys still, I, I assume, well, Alex, I know I, I talked to you directly. Um, well, Zach, you know, you were in that segment too, yeah. So yeah. are we still as all excited as we were, uh, you know, that night we recorded our reaction segment? Yeah, I mean, I'm, yeah. Zelda's exciting. Uh, Smash Bros. is probably going to be one of the best games of the year. Most of the other ones I kind of forgot. I'm pretty excited about 2015, i got to tell you. Yeah, like like I'm not worried about many of these games because almost all of them aren't coming out this year. Yeah, and that's that's probably the one thing that does kind of damper it a little bit for me is that it's just kind of like, you know, this is great, and we saw the Treehouse stuff for, for so for like a whole day I was seeing footage of all these great games I'm so excited about, and now there's just sort of nothing. I mean, we get Hyrule um, Warriors, Warriors or whatever. You know what, I'm, uh, the more I see of that game, the more excited I am, the more like right. fanboy-y I get of it, out of it. Like, they just they just announced Agatha, the friggin' bug collector, as a playable character. I'm like... Mm-hmm. Why not? Yeah, they're going all out. Um, I'm excited about that, too. Um, but, yeah, I'll agree with the Ox that it's kind of like, okay, well, that's all great, but now, apart from, I guess, Hyrule Warriors and then Smash Brothers, that's kind of it, really. Um, and not, not that's bad, but it does kind of make you realize, well, what am I going to be playing on uh, my Wii U, you know, until December when uh, Smash Brothers comes out? And I guess it's just 
Oh, it was just saying that that actually connects to the other, uh, like the future of E3, and that I think, I think Nintendo deserves many of the pats on the back they get this year because they're trying something new and they're pulling it off. I do think that uh, even though like what they did was really good, I don't think it's quite revolutionary yet. I I don't think it's quite uh I don't think it was that amazing especially compared to E3 2010 when there were a lot of big games coming like every 10 minutes. Uh I I I think Nintendo's getting a head start on the way E3 is already headed. I don't think they're going to be the ones to change the face of press conferences. I think it would have happened whether Nintendo had this thing or not. Hmm. You know, I don't know. I mean, because I watched, like, the Sony uh, the Sony press conference especially. I didn't see too much of the Microsoft one, but the Sony one was very long, and it had great moments, but then there were all these sort of things wedged in there that just weren't all that interesting, you know, namely the, the, the whole comic books the whole thing. The section, yeah. Yeah, or, yeah, it just really, like, grinded to a halt. And to me, that's, like, old-school E3 conference where the kind of, like, filler is in the middle and then you get the good stuff. You know, you, your book ended by good stuff. Um, but I got to think after what Nintendo did and pulled off that I think that will change. And I do think they've kind of steered it in a new direction. And maybe not entirely by their the digital event, per se. I mean, people might still prefer to do the uh, the live conferences, and that's fine. I mean, I like the live stuff, too. Um, even if the, the pre-recorded stuff, you know, you, you deliver your message exactly how you want to, which is great. Um, but there is, that live element is exciting too, but it's the, after the press conference stuff that I think Nintendo has kind of opened Sony and Microsoft up to. Like, I will not be surprised if Sony and Microsoft are doing exclusive streams after their conferences with, like, games and questions and developers and that kind of stuff. Yeah. Sort of cutting out, you know, uh, us, the, the games journalists, if you will. Uh, I'm, I don't want to sound like, uh... I'm scared of my job for anything, because, like, realistically, like, this isn't my job, this is just, this is something I do seriously, but I do for fun, so, like, I'm not scared of losing my position as a fake amateur professional <laughs> game journalist, but I do think that, uh, like, I think uh, Jeff Gersman or whatever was making a point of this on the earlier Bombcast this week, but he was saying that, like, journalism, video game journalism as an idea should still be a necessary part of the equation because there really needs to be an in-between between the companies and the people. Oh, yeah. There needs to be someone professional sorting through the bullshit and making sure that uh, people aren't just getting the full brunt of the PR message. Or at yeah. least that there's an alternative to it. No, I, I don't want to make it sound like the people aren't smart enough. But I'm not even saying I'm smart enough for this necessarily, but I, I'm saying that the, the journalism concept as an idea, even if, you know, paid, whatever, it, like, the idea of a pure journalism is important to the future of this industry because there has to be someone in between the PR and the consumer. I, right, I, breaking it down. I don't yeah. like the future where it's all direct because that's kind of scary. No, I totally agree with you. The The one exception I would make is I don't know – if if we do need sort of, you know, the, the journalism or journalists sort of breaking down things at, at these types of live events where we're just sort of getting announcements, maybe you're even you're maybe they're not even playing the games, they're watching, you know, offhand demos and things like that. I mean, do we need someone then to break it down? I mean, is that do I need to hear someone's opinion on something like that? Is that much different than me watching a trailer and making my own opinion that early in the process? You know, I don't know. 
but I absolutely further down the road. I mean, I still think previews and reviews and then, like, post, you know, game release features and that type of stuff is is very important. Um, but do I need to watch, like, IGN's feed of, um, you know, Nintendo demos versus just watching Nintendo's own feed when you're not really making a critical right. uh, statement that early? You know, I don't know. Sure. Like, at... Maybe the press needs to refocus. In fact, I think the press definitely needs to refocus on how they cover and how people can start taking the video game press seriously as actual journalists, which is definitely not the case right now. Uh, but I think there's there's still a place for people in between the consumers and the, the companies. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, it, you know, if it's a closed doors thing, like I loved reading all the reactions and stuff on Twitter, like during the Project Steam announce or Codename Steam announcement, um, because there was no video, there was nothing to watch at the time. So that was fantastic, um, getting that immediate reaction and reporting. That was great. But as far as like when I have equal access to the stuff that's getting reported on, um, it's kind of redundant to that point. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So and as E3 becomes more welcoming to people watching through these types of streams. Um, yeah, I don't know about reporting so much directly from E3. You know, hands hands on, excuse me, hands on impressions are a little bit different. Um, but it's still it's so early. I mean, things can still change so much. You know, I mean, I, I don't know. It's just yeah, we've like all you know, played, we've all kind of played the uh, Toad game already. Yeah. Well, well, yeah, exactly. Yeah, that was basically already from another game. Um, so yeah, I don't know. But um, I do think. Absolutely, that Sony and Microsoft are going to be looking at their own sort of post-conference feeds for next year. I'd, I'd be shocked if they don't. At the very least, they might ha still have the live show, but they might also do a treehouse kind of thing to keep people interested throughout the show. I don't think the press conferences for them stops next year. I, no. I think I think it's too early. For that to happen, I think it would have to be more gradual. Like, it would have to be next year, maybe they'd have a treehouse, and then the year after that, maybe they slowly tone it down until eventually it becomes their own repurposed thing. Actually, PlayStation had a stream this year. I actually I watched a Bloodborne discussion on it, I remember. Oh, okay. So, it, it was on a much smaller scale. I think it was for fewer hours, and right. uh, each segment was like five or ten minutes, but it's... I think it's already happening. I think Nintendo's the most pronounced about it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, let's let's go on to the next thing. Okay. Yeah. Um. Was there any final E3 stuff, or do you guys want to move on to the next question? I'll probably go next year if if my health is fine. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's the thing too. Yeah. Admin asked if we if we go to E3. I guess none of us three went this year. I was going to go, but then things kind of fell through at the end. Um, are close to when E3 was happening, but yeah, no, I mean, people on staff go. Um, Neil, Neil went. Um, I'm trying to think. I guess no one else from like the connectivity regular crew went, but um, you know, like most of the RFN guys go. Yeah. And um, yeah, we we go, we cover it. Um, I'd say what there were probably like six, eight, maybe ten of us there uh, this yeah. year. I think staff, ten's so. usually the uh the, the E3 max. amount. Oh, I, the, the uh, what? Yeah. I hate it while I'm there, but. I need a three-year break in between, but uh, then I convinced myself I should go again. Yeah, it's exciting. This year would have been exciting to go just because there were... I think next year will be better because there will be so many so many better games. Well, yeah, and all these games they announced will be, like, fully playable. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> that's a good point. I'll have to bank on going next year. Um, let's see. There was another question sort of tied to, like, post-E3 stuff now. 
Um, here's one uh, doo -doo 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 from Tim Chatton. This came from Twitter just now. Uh, he says, what are the chances we get a 3DS-focused Nintendo Direct in the next few weeks? And I think this is kind of a response directly to the fact that, well, there wasn't much 3DS stuff shown uh, yeah. at, uh, at E3 apart from the codename Steam reveal. Um, I would think we will. I mean, there's Smash Brothers on the horizon, so I wouldn't be surprised if they... they do a say or a direct focus, you know, direct uh, <laughs> a direct focus directly on uh, Smash Brothers for 3DS. But um, I mean, what else is going coming for 3DS soon? It's Smash. It's Pokemon. It's Pokemon Art oh, Academy. Yeah, Pokemon. It's Phoenix Wright Layton, which is published by Nintendo. I'm almost positive. And uh, there was Tomodachi in June, and then I I think Fantasy Life might be published by Nintendo, but I'm not sure. But if that's the case. Uh, I think from their perspective, the schedule is stacked enough that they don't need it. But I'm sure they'll do something to remind people and maybe tease something for early 2015 that we don't know about yet. That'd be nice. I don't yeah. think it's coming too soon, because I, I think they kind of blew their load a little on what the announcements <laughs> were. Yeah. But uh, it's. I think we're going to see more 3DS focus in the next couple months, maybe. Yeah. Nice, yeah. Yeah, I agree with that. I think there was stuff they could have shown for 3DS at uh, E3, but it, with the state of the Wii U, I think they made the right decision and just pretty much focusing entirely on Wii U. Um, and they did a good job with it. So Yeah. Um, this question, uh, also from Twitter, is from Peter Stockwell. Uh, in light of E3, if given the chance, what type of new IP would you want Nintendo to take on in the future? Um, I mean, I've said this in the past, but I would love that... Nintendo really devoted themselves to making like a serious first-person shooter. Well, it doesn't necessarily have to be serious, but like a, a very good, competent uh, first-person shooter. I think that's like the one genre they're sort of lacking in, and I would love if they to see them put their resources behind something like that and see what they could come up with. Yeah, they should bring back 2D platformers. Those don't get enough love anymore. <laughs> yeah, there's not enough of those, right? No. Uh, I I can't think of. Um, I don't know, man. I I. Uh... They kind of make all the games that I like right now. I'd yeah. like to see a Pokemon MMO. How about that? There what you go. That, <laughs> that long time wish, yeah. What yeah. about you, Alex? I'm not sure if I necessarily care about what genre they do, but I'm thinking about, like, so new franchises they've done. They announced a few this year, all of them pretty small in the grand scheme of things. Like, maybe Splatoon is going to be a little bit bigger. Maybe uh, Project Steam is going to be a C or B tier franchise, but that's mostly the biggest that it's been. I'm not saying that's bad. That's better than it has been for the last couple years. But I'm just thinking about the last huge non-Wii uh, branded new franchises they've done. And I think of Animal Crossing, and I think of Pikmin. And there's been some stuff along the way that kind of counts, like WarioWare. But mm -hmm. we haven't had anything as big as Pikmin or Animal Crossing not counting the Wii stuff, and maybe we could count Nintendo Land, but I I don't on a real... On the, on nope. the type of scale, I'm, I mean, like, character-focused, with weird art and a, and a weird take on a genre. Like, we haven't had anything on that big of a scale since, like, the early 2000s, and I want them to give that a new shot. Like, I know Miyamoto's working on his stuff. I want him to develop a new focused character and a new focused character game and not in the style of Pikmin necessarily, but what Pikmin was to the GameCube, I want them to do that kind of thing again for the Wii U. Yeah. 
Maybe the giant robot game will be that. One can only well, hope. supposedly that's all supposed to be like built into the next Star Fox game. So. I hope not. <laughs> so, yeah, we'll see what happens with that. Um, one more from uh, from Twitter. Uh, this was he didn't have his real name on Twitter, but uh, his handle is Nintendorky. So there you go. Um, he asks, what amiibo figure will sell the least? The least. I don't know who's 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 the least popular Smash Brothers character. Uh, Morph Ball Samus will sell the least. Ah, I don't know. Pit, uh, <laughs> like Pit has an audience. Like he, he, Pit probably has a rabid audience, but it's probably a very niche rabid audience. I would think the Fit Trainer. Yeah, Fit Trainer yeah, is maybe not going to sell that well. Because even people who use the Fit Trainer, like I think it will be just kind of like. To be funny, you know. I mean, I don't know. I'm sure the fit trainer has redeemable qualities, but you know, I don't. That she's. It's just such a boring character design to begin with. I mean, do you really want that like on your desk uh, when you're not playing? I don't think so. Yeah, it's only really cool in the context of Smash Bros. Right. Yeah. But then again, on the flip side, I mean, how trolly would it be like to be playing your friend and he pulls out his fit trainer uh, figurine, drops it on the gamepad, and then all of a sudden there's like a level 10 fit trainer there just like huh. kicking your ass. So huh. I don't know. I guess I could see it going either way, but to me that that I, one I actually wrote a. a uh, it's not up on the site yet. I think it's in editing or review or something. I, I wrote a top ten least popular amiibo figures, hypothetical least popular amiibo figures. Number one was uh, uh, purple Pikmin Reggie. <laughs> Could <laughs> be some nightmare good. fuel there. <laughs> so I, I got a list of not a list, but I basically have a, a small array of them. And so we got Marth, Donkey Kong, Yoshi, Link, Zelda, Pikachu, Mario, Fox, Samus, uh, Villager, wait, wait, Kirby, wait. Peach. Yeah. Marth is in the game? Marth yep. is getting an amiibo, and he is I in the game. I didn't know that. Yeah, they, huh. that came out a couple of weeks ago, or like before E3. Yeah, I somehow missed so that. If you wanted an answer to the least popular amiibo figure, I, I think Zach just gave you your answer. <laughs> yeah, that might be it. <laughs> Fire yeah, Marth probably. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, maybe if they'd done an, an actual awakening character that people are like familiar with right now yeah, and that is like point. fresh in their minds, that might have worked. But yeah, I, I think Krom's still going to be in the game. I hope so. I mean, I really do hope so. Um. Okay. So there you go. Um. Let's move on then to the next question. Uh, this one, this is kind of a like a broad uh, question, and he didn't really give examples of what he's referring to. But let's see what we have here. Um, could you talk about how single player has been left behind with no advancement whatsoever, with all development time going into multiplayer in all the new major games? Thank you. That's from John Henry. Um, yeah, I, I wish even you would with Nintendo given... games, man, Mario 3D World is multiplayer focused and pisses me off. That's true. That is true. true. A lot of the design was compromised for the sake of multiplayer. Which sucks for you guys, but it's great for me because yeah, I put that entire yeah, thing yeah. with my wife. Yeah, so it was a blast. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and that, that see, I prefer that. Um, and I think there's going to be more games like Titanfall and Destiny where it's like multiplayer game. Yeah, well, Destiny for sure. Yeah, I mean, I didn't realize it going into I knew it was multiplayer focused, but I didn't realize it was just straight up an MMO. Yeah. Well, um, it's, it's like a Borderlands, but more of an MMO, basically. Yeah. With, with some right. Halo combat. Yeah. Which was good. You you were you played that right, Alex? Didn't you say? Yeah, that? it was pretty fun. I I like. So I guess let's not go into too much of a tangent. But the one thing I thought was really cool about Destiny 
was that it's uh first person shooters are becoming more vertical now. Like you got jetpacks now. You got mm-hmm. uh you can jump far more than you could in the past, and that was the case with Titanfall. And I think that that's going to be something that goes into the future of the shooter, I think. Is uh the shooters are going to be more aerial. The verticality that Metroid Prime uh, uh did 10 years ago. Uh no jetpacks on Samus. No, uh, that's true. <laughs> she was jumping she had, up a lot. A lot, yeah. <laughs> or tribes uh, many many years ago. Oh yeah, tribes. Uh, yeah, that was that was like a super mobile uh first person shooter before that was really a thing. Um, uh, I I don't know. I'm I'm not loving the new direction that multiplayer games are taking and that they're kind of leaving single-player campaigns behind. Like, even the Call of Duty games, they've got a campaign, but they don't tie into the multiplayer at all. And, and right, most and, people and, don't even play it. And yeah, I was going to say, unlike most games, uh, or at least the way it used to be, uh, you know, last generation and before, it's like the single-player is more of an afterthought, and the multiplayer is the, uh, the main component. Yeah. But the, the great thing about video games now, is, and this happens a lot, a lot of people are saying that uh, games are, worse now than they were in their pure past and uh the multiplayer and free to play and yada yada is taking over everything. The thing like a lot of these arguments forget is that there are way more video games now that are being commercially uh that includes digitally sold on a daily basis. So much so and so many good games that if you don't like the way one game is going there's probably another game out there that's going to be more what you're into. If you don't yeah. like Call of Duty, and uh, you don't like Grand Theft Auto, and you don't like Dark Souls, maybe Shovel Knight will be what you want. Yeah, I, I guess the only, like, the... Uh, I mean, I, maybe his complaint here is maybe is a specific genre that he prefers, and it's all going multiplayer-focused, so... Well, yeah, like, you could say that, just play Shovel Knight instead of Call of Duty. Maybe he loves first-person shooters and just is kind of dismayed at where they're at now. I, I don't know that. I'm well, just sort of speculating. If but if that's the case, I heartily recommend that you play Metro, uh, Metro 2033 and Metro Last Light, and that you play things like the classic Deus Ex, uh, and that you play things and like amnesia. the new Wolfenstein and Amnesia. Well, Amnesia's a little bit different, but it still kind of counts. But a strong single-player game. You might have to dig a bit more, but there are still some really excellent games coming out that still respect the first-person shooter story. Yeah. And I was going to say, not related to first-person shooters, before I brought that point up of genre specifically, um, but a game we talked about before we started recording, but something like Gone Home, I mean, that's an entirely like singular personal experience. Uh, yeah, man. I think, I think that's fantastic. Um so there's there's definitely stuff out there, um, and like I said, I I don't feel the burn as much as maybe other people do because I pretty much like permanently have a cooperative partner um, <laughs> with my wife, so um, these things don't really bother me. In fact, I think they're positives. As soon as you, uh, Yoshi's Woolly World or whatever, once they showed you could play a two-player co-op, I was like, yep, sold 100%. So yeah, exactly. You can eat your your partner and turn them into an egg and throw them onto higher platforms. So that's pretty much all I need. So. <laughs> All right, let's move on to the next one. Uh, he has a two-parter question. One's kind of a softball and one's a little bit more serious. We'll start with the, this easier question here. Um, his name is Ben. He says that we're pretty chill and he likes listening to our podcast, so thank you for that. Um, his first question, what's our favorite model in the Game Boy line and why? Ooh. 
Yeah, I thought that was interesting, and I, I think it'll kind of depend on, like, age a little bit. Like, Zach, yours and ours might be closer than, than Alex might be, but I'm not sure. Um, Alex, why don't you start? Do you have a, a favorite Game Boy model? So Do you I, even play I, much of the Game Boy Advance or sh- before that? I sh- so are we, is he talking about Game Boy Advance uh, specifically? The, ga- the whole no. Game Boy line. Okay. Yeah, and it, as long as it has, it Game, has Boy Game, Game Boy in it. So my first console was the lime green Game Boy Color, and I remember that pretty fondly, based on nostalgia. Uh, the Game Boy Advance, I also remem- remember fondly, like the uh, the OG one, but at the same time I can acknowledge that that was kind of crappy. And then there was the Game Boy SP, which I think is probably my favorite, and then the Game Boy Micro is also pretty good because of how good things look on its tiny screen. I can't believe but, I missed uh, out on that The SP probably beats it out, I think. I would agree with that. So, yeah, so your favorite's the Game Boy Advance SP. Right. Um, For me, probably Game Boy Color, I would say. Um, I know it's kind of like this weird, like, nebulous system, because it's, like, between Game Boy and then Game Boy Advance. Um, And I don't know that there were that many, like, specifically Game Boy Color games. There were a um, lot. You'd be surprised. There were a lot. Really? Okay. Yeah. Um. But it was just, it was really fantastic. And, I mean, I remember just, like, freaking out about, like, Mario Brothers DX. Um, I'm trying to think about what other Game Boy Color games I got immediately. But I know I had a bunch. Um, I really liked the Game Boy Advance and uh, especially, you know, the SP. But that came out when I was sort of, like, in the middle of high school and I was in this kind of weird point where I wasn't playing a lot of video games just because, like, I discovered I could have a social life and I discovered what girls were and I basically didn't just didn't play games a lot during that time, uh, console or otherwise. Um, so yeah, I think I think the Game Boy Color. I mean, I had like one of those like just ugly like blue turquoise uh, Game Boy Colors and I, I loved that thing. <laughs> they were all um, charmingly ugly. Yeah, they were. They were. Uh, I, I guess one thing I do if we're gonna talk about the art styles between the consoles a little bit. I think my favorite art style out of all the Game Boys, uh, the Game Boy systems, is probably the Game Boy Color. Like, I just love how games like uh, Pokemon Silver and Link's Awakening DX, like how it has that, like... Oh, there's the other one I had, yeah. That weird... It's it's kind of colorful and kind of drab at the same time. Right, they don't... The games still don't look, like, great, really. Um, But but I I love the look of the system. system. It was so so bright. I love how contoured and, like, shapely it is. I mean, it's really, like, rounded. Um, Yeah, I just really loved that thing. Link's Awakening Um, DX was my first double dip. Oh, really? Oh, look at that. Yeah. Um, So, Zach, what about you? Uh, Objectively, my favorite is the newest version of the Advance SP, the one with the, the Game Boy Micro screen or caliber screen mm-hmm. um, because they started doing that after the micro stopped selling immediately. Oh, okay. They put a better screen in the Game Boy Advance SP. Uh, and, and my favorite one of those is the NES SP, um, which ah. I had for a long time. And then because I was stupid when I was younger, I sold it to afford something probably not as good. Did you already have a DS and that's why, or you just sold it? Cause you just I sold, sold it. it probably to afford the DS maybe. Okay. That ugly-ass original DS. Oh, I had one of those, too, and it was the worst. <laughs> I know, right? Why did I even buy that thing? Um, and, <laughs> and, you know, after like a month later, they were like, DS Lite, yo. I was like, oh, yep. great. Uh, but um, subjectively, my favorite Game Boy is the Game Boy Pocket. Because uh, at, at the time, it was so friggin' tiny. And it still is really tiny. 
And it, it only took, uh, wasn't like two AAA batteries. It was like revolutionary. Yep. Yeah. It went down from, yeah, to two, four, from four. AA's to like two or three, two or yeah. four AAA's. And the battery uh, power was, was better. That screen the was screen like huge. Looked better. It was no longer green. Yeah, and I mean, that thing was, like, all screen. I mean, that was. thing was so small, and, I mean, it was probably half screen. Um, yeah. yeah. I love that. I had, like, the ice blue one or whatever. Uh, um, I had the I had the gray, gray with black oh, okay. buttons. Yeah, yeah. But, yeah, I really liked that thing. Um, yep. That was, like, my, my runner-up besides the uh, the Game Boy Color. In Japan, um, they, they released one with a backlight called the Game Boy oh. Light. Oh, yeah, that's right. I did know that, yeah. Yeah. Kind of wish cool. I had, but yeah, I, I love the Game Boy Pocket, and uh, I I don't have it anymore. I think it broke. Mm. Those uh, those older Game Boys didn't last, weren't as robustly designed as some of the later later consoles or handhelds. Well, especially the pockets and stuff. I feel like it, I, I've I've known several people who have like the original brick Game Boy, and it still works. Yeah, I do. Um, I got one. Yeah, there works. you go. Yeah, that original one is like just like a rock. Uh, yep. But I do agree that some of the others uh, weren't quite as uh, sturdy. Yep. Yeah, that thing was great. I mean, that's what I played all the original po- Pokemon games on. Yep. Um, yeah, that thing was fantastic. Hell yeah. So, um, all right, so his next question, and we kind of, Neil and I did a segment about this uh, maybe about like a year ago, but um, it was just the two of us. So I'm interested to see if you guys have answers for this. But he says, have you ever had a game that directly helped you get through a difficult time in your life? Uh, two of my best friends passed away just out of high school recently. Uh, no, sorry. Two of my best friends passed away just out of high school, and recently I played Earthbound, where I named the friends you meet up with uh, after them, which let me go on one last adventure with them. The naming of your friends and modern setting helped me relate a lot. Uh, shit's real, I know, but I figured you guys wanted something interesting for the show. Thank you. So, um, nothing like that serious. We kind of, Neil and I talked, like, sort of about, like, comfort games, um, and I talked about playing uh, Pokemon X, or not Pokemon X, uh, Pokemon Black, while in the hospital right after my wife and I had my daughter. Um, I, you know, we stayed at the hospital for two nights, and between, like, the Tegan being awake and, and crying and us doing stuff like that, when we were just sort of, like, decompressing after just the crazy shit we'd been through for the past 24 hours, um, I started digging into Pokemon Black. So I think the game will kind of always be tied to those those two days in the hospital and just what a, a wild, like, whirlwind that was. Um, not really like a helping me through it, but just sort of accompanied accompanied me through it. Or, yeah, I guess. So, yeah. what about you guys? Hmm. Um, most of my difficult times have been hospital related, and I couldn't tell you a specific game that got me through any particular hospitalization. But I do remember that my wife got me a launch DS or 3DS. When I was in the hospital one time, and I played it like every day when there were no, no games, I didn't have her buy any games because I, I thought the onboard I thought the onboard software would be good enough. It was oh God. not. It's not. And the hospital <laughs> didn't have Wi-Fi, so it's not oh, like no. Wi-Fi was very good. It wasn't available at launch anyway. The systems or the the services weren't available at launch. Right. I don't think the eShop was up yet. Yeah. No, it wasn't up. It didn't come up for a few months, but. Uh, I played a lot of Face Raiders <laughs> and uh, took a lot of 3D pictures. Oh, no. <laughs> but I was probably in the hospital that time for maybe seven to ten days, but that helped. I didn't play. I ended up not playing it every day because after a few days, I was like, this is kind of it. Yeah. You know? But 
immediately after I got out of the hospital, I got pilot wings, and I burned through that pretty quickly. There you go. Yeah, that's so, so that's funny. The best I got. Wow, I don't know if I hadn't, like, something wrong with me and I was in the hospital. I don't know that face raiders, I feel like fa- plain face raiders every day would make me sicker. Worse, um, yeah. I will say that, like, back in the day when I was, like, a little kid, they had uh, a cart. I've told this story before. They had a cart that has Super Nintendo on it, and they'd wheel it around to people's rooms, and I played, like, through the entire game of Star Fox yeah. uh, when I was, like, 10 or 12, you know, in a hospital bed. It was amazing. Yeah. What about you, Alex? I'm thinking about it, and like I don't, I don't have, I don't really have much of a story that's like uh, this happened to me, and this game really got me through it, because for my whole life I, I I do love games for genuine reasons, but games have always acted as they've always had a secondary purpose of escapism and uh, just general stress relief. Like the closest thing I can think of of like a specific game is like there are some games that like. I play when I need to think about something, like, in the same way that, like, you walk something off. Like, I mean, I, I talk about how much I love Grand Theft Auto 4 a lot, but a game like Grand Theft Auto 4 to me that I know inside and out, and I just go around the open world for a couple hours, blow things up, and just turn my mind off in a way that actually lets me think deeper about a lot of things in my real life. Hmm. Like, it's, uh, it's... When I play games, sometimes I can focus even on stuff that aren't game-related, even... And and that's kind of the closest emotionally I get to games outside of games like Persona 4 that uh can leave me in a mild depression for several days because of how <laughs> uh, like impactful they are to me. Did you guys read that uh it was about when a few months after Journey came out a uh, a woman or not a woman a girl wrote a letter to the game's creator and she said that her dad was in the hospital he was uh dying and she and he played Journey together. It was the last memory she has of her dad playing Journey with him. And she can't even start it up now without, like, bursting into tears. And I was like, none of our stories are going to be that great. That's like, <laughs> yeah. that's, like, the best you could hope for, for getting game through a tough time. Holy crap. I, I guess since many of us have been playing games for so long, uh, probably longer for some than others, uh, we all have incorporated games into our lives, our uh, real-life lives in many different ways. I'm sure some people have specific games that they get through tough times. I'm sure many of us use it to relieve stress. I'm sure uh, many of us have go-to games for us to deal with our feelings. But uh, I, I think this is more of a natural result of playing so many thousands of hours of video games over our lives than anything else. Yeah, I would not want to think about how many hours I've sunk into games. <laughs> yeah, I, I will say that, like, if I'm feeling particularly, like, nostalgic or something, uh, sort of about being a kid or just uh, my younger days, games like Earthbound and Chrono Trigger uh, always stand out to me, and I'll go back to those, and that's sort of kind of, like, comfort food for me, I guess. Not for, like, any specific, like, hardship or something to get over, but if I'm just kind of feeling, yeah, nostalgic, I'll go back to those, because those games definitely dominated my youth, uh, you know, summers between school and stuff like that, so, um, you know, but, all right, uh, let's move on, I think we still have a couple more here, uh, no, actually, you know, I think we've only got, like, one left, um, this one is from Billy, uh, it came from Twitter, 
He says, in your opinion, do you think Nintendo will ever do cross buy? I want Shovel Knight on both consoles, but not pay, but not, uh, but don't want to pay for it twice. Um, that'd be nice, wouldn't it? <laughs> uh, my motto, just somebody at either Kotaku or Polygon asked him about that at E3. They said, you know, Super Mario Brothers 3, when it dropped, you had to buy it on both. You couldn't buy it on one, download it on both. And he was like, oh, sorry about that. We'll do better next time. Oh, did he say that? He did. Oh, well. I don't know what that means, though. Yeah. Next time. <laughs> What's next time mean? Next time you release a console? Great. Yeah, next time we release uh, Mario 3 on the 4DS and the Wii U 2, um, we'll make sure that you can play it on both by buying it once. I think the rest um, of the conversation implied that once the, the handheld, once their handheld and their console have similar hardware, uh, and they don't necessarily have to do testing for two versions, maybe then. Yeah, and I guess I can kind of understand that because I think emulating it on the 3DS and emulating it on the Wii U, it's, I'm sure it's probably different. Um, to me, something like the Vita and the, the PS3 slash PS4 seem much more like linked in sort of hardware and firmware yeah. even. I mean, even just like looking looking at them, they look like, you know, similar. Uh, they come from the similar like sort of uh, and you can, you uh, can brand. And so. you can put a PlayStation in anything by putting a single chip in it. Yeah. Which they've probably true. shrunk down to the size of, you know, a postage stamp or your fingernail. I also think part of that is that, uh, just specifically, uh, PlayStation tidbit. I am almost 100% positive that Mark Cerny was both one of the head guys for PlayStation 4 and PlayStation Vita. Really? Oh. Like, I, I think he had a hand in their architecture being, uh, so easy to develop for, for a lot of people. Well, maybe, maybe that's why the Vita didn't really have too much cross compatibility with PS3. Yeah, uh, but now it's all over the place for PS4. Yeah. Um, I think gamepad. I think in general, Nintendo, not that they get forced into things, but in the same way Nintendo may lead, in, in, in the same way Nintendo may lead with something like their new E3 approach, they'll also be a follower in the case of online, in the case of HD, uh, in the case, in the case of, of, of an play. SD card channel. In the case of this, that <laughs> yeah. channel, and I think in the case of cross-buy, because so many places are doing it now, and not just uh, PlayStation, but even on a smaller scale, something like Valve that lets you get a game on a Mac, uh, yeah. PC, Steam, just Linux, Steam generally. Steam in general. The fact that this is becoming so much, so integrated into video games, doing anything but cross-buy is going to, in the next few years, unintentionally look like a ripoff. I, I don't think you does. can get around that. And it, it, it already does to many of us, and in the next few years, there's not even going to be anything to argue against it. No like, question, if Nintendo doesn't yeah. have it in the next few years, I think... It, it, to quote, if they don't have it in the next few years, they're not doing it on purpose. It, that would be problematic. Yeah. I mean, they're already not doing it on purpose, but they kind of have... They're out is the hardware is different, but in a few years, I don't think they'll be able to get away with it. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, I think they're already, like, kind of doing it because they know they can get people to buy it twice. I mean, really, yeah, I think they are yeah. doing it for the money. I mean, now that you've got your Nintendo Network ID on both platforms, they're linked. Oh, I yeah, mean, exactly. Have you, I don't know if you guys have messed with this, because um, I don't know how much you guys change your Miis, but my daughter loves going into the Mii Maker and sort of messing around, and for the most part, she just sort of, like, slaps new Miis together, but... Uh, one day she went uh, on the Wii U and changed my me, 
and made it into a girl, gave it long hair, all that kind of stuff. Um, yeah, and it, it stayed that way for like about a month because I was just too lazy to change it. And I didn't think anyone would see it. But then um, someone commented on Twitter that they saw my, my new me on the 3DS and oh, thought they it was were like so proud of you. Thought it was yeah, thought it was frightening. Um, and I took a look, and yeah, if you change your me on the 3DS or the Wii U, it will change on the other. Um, wow! If, if your systems are all linked to your Nintendo Network ID, so it it's already a universal account. I mean, the fact that changing yeah. your me on one of them changes it on the other um, is insane. They can so, already tell you bought it once. Yeah, for sure. Oh yeah, yeah. absolutely. Like it shouldn't be a problem. It's all tied to your account, um, and they're just choosing not to do it. Like yeah. that's absolutely what it is. They just—I think they—it's a way to make more money. Nintendo is just like constantly doing the splits, and in the sense that <laughs> they always have a one foot two steps forward and the other step and the other foot two steps back. And I don't remember the last time this wasn't the case. Like, even in the Wii, they didn't have HD while the other consoles did, but they figured out a way to get casual gamers involved. And the I DS, wonder, huh? You know, I wonder if, if a lot of their backwards-looking things, the things you just say, what the heck, Nintendo, I wonder if a lot of it has to do with the Japanese gaming scene. I have no idea what the Japanese gaming scene is. Maybe in Japan, Dying. people didn't give a shit about HD as much. Uh, I know they don't give a shit about online as much because they're they've all got 3DSs and they street pass with each other every day, um, but you know like like HD or, or the SD card channel maybe people just don't download games over there you know what I'm saying or or this three uh, cross buy thing maybe they just aren't into that because they don't download shit I don't know I'm just saying maybe because Nintendo has historically been very tied to Japanese gaming culture. Uh, in a well, yeah, and I detriment. Think, I think they've been resistant to let, like, you know, like Nintendo of America or Nintendo of Europe really oh, influence, yeah. influence how things are really run. Um, yeah. No, I think there's something to that. Even the, the Tamodachi Life stuff, you know, with the gay marriage stuff, like, it, it's just not an issue in Japan, so it wasn't right. included. And then it comes here, and it's this whole social problem, and I, I bet they didn't and think that was at all. And they're genuinely surprised. Oh, yeah, for sure. For sure. And I don't think that's something like Sony... Uh, would let happen because I think they've kind of done a good job of sort of blending the two markets and knowing yeah. what works for everyone. Like if, if you got Reggie in a room and you s- turned off your recorder and said, Reggie, come on, cross by, right? He'd be like, yeah, we know, but we can't do shit about it. No, he wouldn't. <laughs> he would, <laughs> he would always off the record. Some There's going to be a PR two steps away from him. At yeah. any given time. <laughs> That's true. Uh, yeah. yeah, off the record, you find him in the bathroom by himself. I, there you, I, go. you know, you're standing next to him at the urinal. I think he would. Uh, I think he would agree with that. Um, but I think there's also promise. I mean, I think this E3 in general. I think that we've talked about it before, but I really think they let sort of Nintendo of America run things. I mean, it was very much tailored for us, like a Western audience. Like so, the robot chicken stuff, yeah. yeah. For sure, yeah. That's not that's not a Japanese thing at all. Um, so I don't even know that that style of humor would even appeal to, to Japanese people. You know, I don't know. But um, so I'm hoping they're sort of getting more control or at least more input. But um, we'll see. Maybe that's sort of a new focus for them after sort of the uh, abysmal Wii U sales and the, um, you know, recalculated sales totals and all this kind of stuff. Maybe that's part of what they're doing now is trying to focus more on a Western audience. So Maybe. Only well, hope. We'll see. Yeah, and maybe cross-buy will come. 
I don't know. But I don't think it will come very soon. I'm just still going to be jaded and say, like, if it ever comes, it'll be, like, yeah, either with the next hardware iteration or something like that. So, yeah. So, well, that's it for all the mail. Um, Thank you, everyone, who sent in questions and thoughts, whether it was to our email or to Twitter. That was fantastic. Keep sending Um, them in. Connectivity at NintendoWorldReport.com. That is right. Yeah, keep sending them in. Um, we like doing these. The more mail we'll get, the the sooner we'll do them. So keep sending your mail. Um, and that will do it. So, Zach and Alex, thank you for being here. You're welcome. Of course. And, uh, talking some mail, and uh, we'll talk to you guys later. Bye. Bye. Welcome to a special Shovel Knight segment here on Connectivity. I'm your host, Neil Ronahan, and with me is a, a relatively uh, order of no quarter of uh, NWR staffers. We have Andy Gergen. What's going on? Zach Miller. This game makes my shovel hard. <laughs> and Alex Kalafi. Ah, uh, this game is more like shovelware to me. Ah. Uh, I'm just kidding. Right, I love so, it, too. So... We've we've all we've all uh, played the game. We've all finished the game at least once. I think has anyone finished a new game plus or no? I'm getting there, but I'm making it hard on myself. Yeah. Now, I mean, new game new game plus doesn't fuck around as far as I can tell. It's just the checkpoints are far fewer, out, and, and there's uh, no no they, health. Yeah, and they do more damage to you as well. I started using the uh, the the triple knight or the triple fish shit. In oh new yeah, game plus. you got to. Yep. You didn't use it the first time around? No, no, I I didn't realize <laughs> what you could do. Like, because I went there, and I don't think I had... Oh, like, you didn't the, have a cup? Yeah, I didn't have the cups yet, and I was just like, what, what's this shit? And I got the cups and just totally forgot about it. <laughs> and then I was having trouble uh, going through Plague Knight, I think. Yeah. Um, in, in New Game Plus, and was like, wait a minute, I think there's something that I can do to help me out. And, yeah, <laughs> this is going to really bug me, because I, like, when I learn that I suck at Mario Kart, or, like, Smash Brothers or some shit, I think, ah, well, this isn't my era of gaming. My era of gaming was the <laughs> NES, like, I'm, I'm at least really good at that shit. And then Shovel Knight comes out, and it turns out that I kind of suck at that, too. Well, in all fairness, <laughs> Shovel Knight, like... Yes, it's inspired by so many uh, different classic games, but it has the tightness of a game that came out today. Like, yeah, it has a lot of the great stuff about today too. I mean, because that's the thing is that I mean we we kind of got ahead of ourselves talking about shit like New Game Plus, um, but Shovel Knight. For those who are unawares, it is uh, from Yacht Club Games, which is made up of a bunch of uh, former Way Forward people. Uh, I'm not sure exactly how the breakdown occurs, but I know uh, Sean Valesco, I think, is kind of the uh, 
the the mastermind or I think head boatswain or something because the whole yacht thing. Uh, and he worked on a boy in this blob. I think Contra Four, both of the Batman Brave and the Bold games on Wii and DS, and then uh, Blood Rain Betrayal, and then and then uh, him and a bunch of other guys that that all worked on those games. They love to make Yacht Club. They did Kickstarter and they produced Shovel Knight, and it's been I think about a year plus since the Kickstarter, and now it's finally out. And I think oh, that's it. Thing. Yeah, because I think it was PAX East, uh, 2013. When the uh, thing about this, if you want to, if you want to put the timing in some in some contextual perce- or uh, in some in some perspective, Shovel Knight and Ducktales Remastered were announced at almost the same time. Yeah, oh, it was. Wow. It was at pa- I think Shovel Knight was right before PAX East, and Ducktales was yeah. at PAX East. Because it just seemed like it was this weird dichotomy of like the the guys from Way Forward and the guys at Way Forward. Um, both doing a sort of DuckTales-inspired retro-style platformer, except for one of them was literally remaking DuckTales, and one of them was just taking the inspiration and making an original title. And I remember thinking it was just sort of, I don't know, this weird bit of timing that both of these things were happening at the same time. And obviously, yeah. we we got DuckTales in like... And DuckTales was probably in development earlier, and it was backed by yeah. a studio. It was backed by Disney. Um, and Well, Capcom, and, and I think, Capcom, more, obviously, more the company um, behind that. So I mean, it was it, we, we got Ducktales about what three or four months after the announcement. Yeah, it and didn't it took, take long. It took over a full year for Shovel Knight to finally hit. Um, well, I know Shovel Knight was originally supposed to come out, I think September of last year, and yeah. what happened is I think they kept on hitting stretch goals, and the kind of the scope of the game oh. got bigger. And also with a lot of those Kickstarter projects and just indie games in general. If you notice, there's a lot of times where they're like, hey, this game's going to come out in the beginning of 2013, and, like, 1001 Spikes came out two weeks ago. Yeah. Well, they got, I think, you know, they got a whole bunch more money. And not only the stretch goals, because the stretch goals haven't even hit yet. A lot of that stuff is coming later via free updates. But I think just as they got more money in, they realized they could just make the scope of the base game bigger. I think things like the towns weren't even necessarily in there in the beginning. Yeah. I, I think that is the case. Um... But what the game is, uh, there's actually a really cool piece over on US Gamer where it's kind of like a recipe of what went into the game. And uh, the big, I mean, we were talking about DuckTales and that seemingly being a big influence on this, but especially after playing it and, and hearing the guys at Yacht Club talk about it, is that more of the influence on combat is it's like a mix between Zelda 2 and Castlevania. Yeah, definitely. Because um, the downward thrust that people kind of was just like, oh, it's the pogo stick from DuckTales. Like, no, that is that is the downward thrust from Zelda 2. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, also, and it feels, it's so rewarding using that downward thrust. Just the downward thrust, one thing that was interesting to me about that was, I, I don't have a ton of exper- experience with DuckTales, but the pogo stick move, the downward strike, reminded me more of... Like kind of like Yoshi's Island in Donkey Kong Country, how when you press A right when you bounce on an enemy, it makes you go higher. Yeah. Like because unlike the pogo stick, that's a Mario too. I it, mean, that uh, wasn't Mario before. It was sure. anywhere else. Sure, but uh, and then but unlike the pogo stick, it also can't be used on the ground, so it's strictly like uh, an extra bounce sort of thing. But yeah, just sure. a little that's easier how you use to control. It in this game, yeah. Well, I think that's one of the reasons it's comparable to Ducktales is because Zelda Two doesn't have that bounce mechanic. There, it's not used to get to places; right. it's just used to to attack enemies. Whereas Shovel Knight uses it um, uses it both ways and successfully, really both ways. I see. I see the uh, Mega Man influence not just in the eight different bosses you fight, but also the <clears throat> the weapons you find, the relics. 
you know, they're they're not. You would in a Mega Man game, you'd get them from the bosses, but in this game, you just find them in each level and you use them like you would Mega Man, you know, weapons. They drain. See that almost that almost kind of reminded me more of like the the sub weapons in Castlevania. Well, like, they so, definitely the way, the way, there's like the axe, the anchor yeah. is definitely the axe, yeah, and, and the, even like the, and the, the fireball, fireball is the too, knife. Yeah. You're right, but but then you do have that like that gear that's like the uh, I forget like the, the the rush thing. Yeah, I forget the name of it. Um, and then there's that air punch, which is pretty cool. There's actually a, a relic that I missed when I played the game. I think the one that gives you flight. I, I don't know where it is. I don't. Oh, know really? You can buy it, yeah. you know. No, it's in. Well, you buy it in the in the stage in the in the in the Sky Knight. Well, no, but you can Sky buy Knight's it outside level. of the stage too in the first town. No, you can only buy two relics from that guy. Nope. Well, after what? you miss relics, you can go back to that guy, and he will sell you all the stuff you missed. I I, I went place. there right before the final boss, and I could not buy that relic. Yeah, I had to find it. I, I don't know why I was able to yeah. get it almost immediately after going playing. Yeah, I I, I kind of assumed with that. I didn't run into the issue, but I, I assume that it's like if you found the guy and didn't have the money for it, then it would show up in town. That makes more sense oh, to me. Oh, okay. Yeah, that actually makes a lot more sense. There was a few times where I had to really grind for cash to get that relic. I ne- Really? I never, I never had a shortage of money. Yeah, well, I died a lot. How many times oh, okay. did you die in the game, Zach? 76 total. See, 150 I, plus for me. I think I was Damn. 120. Yeah, on remember, I suck at video games. I've been playing games <laughs> since I was six, and I haven't gotten better yet. Yeah, but you still beat it. That's the important thing. I still beat it, this, yeah. game, this game doesn't really fuck around. Um, oh my gosh, that last fight is so great. Yeah, uh, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll, we will kind of curb the, the, like, the finale spoiler talk, because I, I think the finale is pretty sweet. Um, maybe we'll, maybe we'll leave that to, like, five minutes at the end. We'll, we'll spoiler it out. Um, but as far as, like, I mean, we did mention that the Mega Man inspiration and how the the villains kind of mirror, you know, your your Mega Man Robot Masters. But I actually think there's so much wonderful personality in all the villains, especially as you go through the game and kind of, you know, some of them return. Like the like the Black Knight shows up a couple times. Um, and even all the townspeople, like, the dialogue is just spot on because it's not like, it's not like the guacamelee, like, oh, here's a meme, here's a joke. It's just like... This is like snappier dialogue that you would expect like a shittier version of that to show up in like a NES game from the 90s. There's nothing pretentious in this game at all and it's right. Yeah. It's just so it's a like I it feels weird to be like it's a very humble game, but like it is. It, it's it earnest. is what it is. Yes, it's so fucking earnest. Well, it's whimsical though too. It's not I mean you say earnest, like I think that implies that it's not that there's not a lot of of self-deprecating humor, and and there is. It's just not making fun of anything else, really. It's yeah, it's yeah. like the 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 frog puns. The frog puns are so dumb, but so wonderful. It feel it has it has the self-deprecating humor of like a really bad '80s movie. Yeah, because it's a really bad '80s game, not a really bad '80s game, but it's sort of playing off the off of the the. The context of being a game that was, you know, from a different era. Yeah. Yeah. And even, I mean, like, all the stuff, like, when you're in the town and after you beat one of the bosses, you go down there and a lady dances around. I know. They're happy. They're happy that you that you won. I like that and little she, mini game down there, too. 
Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's just a lot of really neat little things tucked away, and even all the little hidden areas that you find, because at first, when I heard the structure of the game, I kind of assumed it would just be straight-up Mega Man, where it's like, yeah, me too. here's a level for this boss, and then you find all these other areas, and then, like, the wandering monsters, or the, the wandering travelers, or whatever that you fight, and they all kind of add this other layer, and it's just, like, it's a very deep experience that doesn't really betray the fact that it's, you know, almost portrayed like a long-lost NES game. Yeah, it's it's. I'd compare it to uh, uh, Dark Void Zero in that sense. I thought Dark Void Zero was a lot more like stupidly tongue in cheek. Oh, it was, but I mean, it it was. It's kind of clearly made with that era in mind. I think probably a better comparison would be Mega Man Nine and Ten. Those are the last Ooh, yeah. like AAA, like meant to be a remake of an NES game productions that I can think of. Um, I actually found myself comparing it, like, just if, if nothing else other than in difficulty to Mega Man 9 and 10, because I died a lot. Um, <laughs> and so I, I found myself, like, kind of wondering to my, like, wondering to myself if this game was as hard or harder than those later Mega Man games, which I never did beat, although, honestly, I never tried that hard either. Um, but I still haven't beaten 9. I, I feel like this game has way more personality than a Mega Man game does, um, I do oh, think yeah. that there it shares a lot of level structure with Mega Man, although the levels are about four times longer than any Mega Man level. Um, but just the there way are so like, many little hidden secrets. You climb the ladder and, the, and with with the, the way the screen scrolls, like they're built like Mega Man stages. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I would just I think I would more compare the difficulty to specifically Donkey Kong Country Returns. I, I won't go into my whole tirade about how I think these two games are. Uh, very similar in philosophy, but specifically the difficulty. Specifically the difficulty is similar in that it's a very challenging game, but it's also incredibly forgiving. Well, I think that's the kind of the modern angle to it is, I mean, like, I, I to an extent, well, I guess there's part of me with your whole Donkey Kong Country Returns and Shovel Knight thing, I think it's a stretch, but then they are kind of coming at it from the same angle on that they are taking a game from, you know, the early 90s and they're making it modern. And making things modern generally makes them a little more forgiving. But, you know, they're still keeping the challenge that you would find in games from that era. Well, removing, removing the, the, the number of lives to just infinite immediately makes the game more forgiving in a way that's not in, – in a way that doesn't make it less challenging. Because I actually did have trouble with money in this game because I died a lot. And so – have I mentioned that yet? Um, I died a lot. So I, I had my, I found myself having to re, I think it's one of the reasons it took me about an hour longer than the average to beat this game was because I actually had to replay levels just to grind up for some money. Um, because I would find myself, you know, I would have like a good chunk of change and I'd fall in a pit and I'd watch, you know, fairly substantial sized bags of money hover in the air and think, okay, cool, time to get those back. And then I would immediately die again and just like close my 3DS for 10 minutes. Die days. on the way there, yeah. Yeah. I, I did that quite a few times towards the end of the game. Well, then you can get the armor where you lose less. I think that's probably part of the reason why I didn't have a lot of trouble with money was because I yeah. As soon for, as I got that armor, I was like, "Yep, this is it." Yeah, yeah. Because I, I looked at all the other armor, I'm like, there doesn't really seem to be that much of a benefit from having everything else. And then when I was loaded up with money, I used the the fancy gold armor for a little bit. He does a flip. You do a cute little flip, and then I. And then I actually, so much. what was very integral to kind of not like beating beating the last levels without as much trouble was the one armor where when you have like two successive bounces, then you get like the powered up shovel hit. 
Because I basically oh, see, do I that when fighting that. bosses, where I you know bounce on them twice and then get ready, and then you do a you know a hit that does like double damage. Oh, nice. One thing that I one thing that I found myself having a little bit of a problem with, and maybe it's just me, maybe it's by design, but what do you guys think about the fact that you can't change your armor on the fly? That bugged me. It really I, bugged like me. I. You can't even do it on the world map. I mean, you have to go back to the armory. Then I think that's my issue with it. Like I'm okay if it's like you pick one and you're you're stuck with that for the level. But especially because it's so easy to just, you know, switch to a different relic. Um, I would yeah. assume that the the Wii U version, you know, you can just do it on the gamepad. Yep. Because um, that's how you yeah. can do it in the 3DS version. Where you I kind of wish, I, I honestly, even though it was on the gamepad, I kept wishing I could, like, cycle with L and R. Did you, did you notice that there's a button you can hit for a submenu? Select? It's like X, I think. Oh. I didn't notice that till way late in the game that you can hit a button for a submenu, at least on the 3DS version. What's it do? It brings up a like a Mega Man style menu. You can pick your weapon. Oh yeah, I was using oh. that on the Wii U for during my whole. So if you game. don't want to use a touchscreen to do it, you can do it that way. But I do agree that having it on the L and R buttons would have been really nice. And did it mess with anybody how you have to use B to select in this game, or like or like B to go forward? Because there was a while where I was like, is it broken? Like, do I have to tell these guys that their game doesn't work? That's one of those things that throws me whenever I switch back and forth between the Wii U and Xbox or PlayStation versions of a third-party multi-platform game um, is just like on other platforms, that bottom B button is confirm, and then on Nintendo, it has never been that way. Um, it just it makes you feel like as much as this feels like a game that's lovingly crafted for Nintendo, that's one of those little things that reminds you that, like, you know, it's, it's here, but the developers, you know, they're... They're just third-party developers. They'll make it on whatever, and that's I think one of the things that sort of betrays that a little bit. I wouldn't be surprised if this thing ended up on PS4 and PS Vita at some point. Well, they want oh, it yeah. to. They want it to be on every platform possible. Yeah. Uh, which is fine. Uh, have any of you guys been chasing feats? Not a yet, bit. but I will soon enough. Yeah, there, there's, some of them are really fun. Some of them yeah. uh, ask you to do some pretty, uh, pretty interesting things. I'm kind of assuming there's going to end up being one for destroying every checkpoint in a level. And that's what I'm doing right now. Oh, you're a brave soul. I don't enjoy it at all. In fact, I might start a new game just to do that on normal mode, because on hard it's friggin' impossible. Yeah. So I guess uh, this next observation, although it's not really much of an observation, I think they came out and said this themselves, but as someone who just got into the Dark Souls series the series this year. It was very interesting to me that the game like straight up borrowed I, I guess inspired ele- elements from Dark Souls. Like specifically the fact when you die and you drop coins, like that's basically one of the key mechanics of Dark Souls, how when you die you lose all your currency. Was the me the Meaverse stuff, the digger's notebook or whatever, was that up when you guys were playing it? It, you know, it I didn't even check it. I should, though. Yeah, I'm not, I mean, I don't know if that, that might not go live until release day, but... I don't you, even... mentioned, you mentioned Dark Souls, but, like, when I, saw, when, I, when I saw that mechanic, I thought of Zombie U. It's the same thing in Zombie U. When you die, you have to go reclaim huh. your gear, and if you die one more time, you never get it back. Which was also inspired by Demon Souls, at least. Like, like that is one of the bread-and-butter mechanics of Souls. And also, the fact when, after you finish a level, you, you go to a bonfire... That's also uh, straight up out of a Souls game, where that—that's where you're supposed to relax in between really tough level segments. And then they uh, said it themselves on a kicks on the Kickstarter page. 
That's also and, in Tomb Raider. And the the yeah. one thing that uh, I I did really like um, the little dream sequences in between like yeah. I guess, like acts. Um, and I kind of uh, although I didn't I didn't get them between every level. Do you have to do something? It's to get between it it's between acts as far as like you know basically how you oh, open up more of the world map. The, uh, clearing clouds away. Yeah. Because, I, I mean, uh, and there's basically, like, three acts. Well, I guess four acts, technically. Um, but I really, uh, and I, actually, I didn't really think about it as much until I saw um, John Bond's Patrick Klepek tweet something about it, because I guess he's playing through it as well, about how uh, I think the comment that he made was that Shovel Knight has more character motivation in its opening cutscene than Watch Dogs does in its entire game. <laughs> I think that that's Patrick being uh, Patrick. I, I, I disagree with right. that. As someone who just beat both games, it's uh, Watch Dogs. It's it's kind of getting a little more shit than it deserves. But I will say that uh, Shovel Knight does have really excellent story, yeah, considering yeah, I mean, what it's it, trying to do. I I have not played Watch Dogs, so I will not crap on that. But I just thought it was an interesting. Well, the game really oozes personality from yeah, every and, and every bit of this game, every friggin' pixel of this game is imbued with this very strong personality. And, and I think more than anything I've played in recent memory, this game feels like a labor of love. Like, this game feels like something that was put together out of a, a sincere respect and love for, for developing a game and for and for this game in particular. You, you, know, you know, you don't get that with a lot of other... I mean, quite frankly, a game like Mario Kart 8, for example, just kind of feels like going through the motions. And this game feels like the opposite of that. Not to pile on Mario Kart, but I'm just saying, like, I haven't got that feeling from a game on a, on a Nintendo console in a while that it's a labor of love. It, it just kind of feels clinical sometimes, the way those games re- recreate their formula every two to four years. I think, Andy, you made the comment to me, like, in a chat earlier, uh, making the comment that uh, this is like a way forward game when they're not shackled by a license. Yeah. Yes. So, like, when you see, like, the, you know, you're playing, like, you know, WayForward's Transformers game, which is apparently, like, Fire Emblem meets Transformers. Like, play that I and know, be like, right? hey, man, this is pretty cool. See, I never really played Batman Brave and the Bold, so I can't comment on that, but I just know they make a lot of licensed titles that aren't necessarily always that great. I mean, I would say the WayForward license games are stuff where you're like, okay, they were going for something interesting here. And there's varying degrees in how that works. Like, you know, how they made, like, Zelda 2, but Adventure Time. Like how, you know, I, I didn't, I'm not really that into Zelda 2 or Adventure Time. But from what I heard about that game is that, like, yeah, they kind of made a Zelda 2 game. It's just that it's kind of short and not that in-depth. So, like, there's, like, that, that kernel of that cool idea. And Shovel Knight almost feels like when instead of just having that kernel, they were able to explore the full idea to completion. I'd go even further, and I I guess I'm coming at a different perspective than you guys, in that I have never enjoyed a way forward game. In fact, I think I've actively disliked every single one I've played, from Shantae to Adventure Time and beyond. They're kind of one of my favorite third-party developers. And that's fantastic, but... Coming from my specific perspective as someone who has never liked Way Forward and still doesn't like Way Forward, Shovel Knight is everything I've always wanted in a Way Forward game, but have never gotten. Like in, no, uh, I can in, see that. In Way Forward, it kind of feels like they're trying to reach the past, but they never quite do it, uh, at least to me. This feels a lot more authentic. This feels a lot more pure. And this feels like it has a lot more heart in it than any of the Way Forward games I've yep. played. But going back to what I was saying about the story, um, 
I mean, it is like a very, like the, the story setup is very simple and that it's just like, you know, Shovel Knight and Shield Knight were this duo and then they went to the Tower of Fate and like Shield Knight disappeared and Shovel Knight just goes into solitude and then shit gets fucked and he comes out of retirement. And the Order of No Quarter is out to get him. Yes. I love that name so much. But what I love about the story is that like, I mean, like we were kind of talking about as far as like the character motivation to an extent is that stuff like those dream sequences just kind of nail like, this is just, you know, Shovel Knight is just this, this cartoony hero, but he's just trying to get his buddy back. It's more yeah. than a buddy. <laughs> yeah, lover. Like, I don't... Did, did they ever explicitly say lover? On the website. Oh, okay. Oh, do okay. they? Yeah. It's his beloved. All right. Well, then then she's uh, she's getting between him and uh, Dark Knight, too. Or Black Knight, because at the end she's like, Black Knight was my buddy, too. Hey, hey, no spoilers. No spoilers, Zach. All. I'm gonna go into straight hyperbole mode at this point because I'm I'm kind of holding back and I I just I just can't anymore. I want them to develop every video game that I play from now on. <laughs> um, I'm not interested in what the other games are anymore. Like I just I, this is what I want. I want modern takes on retro games. I want them to make a new Metroid. I want them to make a new version of Zelda 2. I want them to make four or five <laughs> more Shovel Knights this year. I I just <laughs> Like I'm just ready for this to be the thing that I play from now on. And well, you know, Andy, from from what I understand, the updates to Shovel Knight are gonna make you want to replay it like seven or eight more times. Yeah, well, I probably will have already played it seven or eight times by the time they get there. But I'll be happy to play it again. I just, I mean, I've, I've, I love old Mega Man games. I'm kind of burnt out on them. Like I, I I'm kind of done with Mega Man for the time being. But I've always loved Castlevania, all three of them. I've always loved Zelda 2. I'm that guy who loves Zelda 2. I just, and this game plays better than those games. It's got that modern polish that it doesn't have some of those old, like, control hiccups that those games have. Um, it's, it's like all of, it's, it's, it's like the way you remember those games, not the way they, those games yes. actually are. And that's what's brilliant about it. And I just, I just love this game so much. And I, you know, I'm not writing a review. But if I was, it would get a pretty damn good, pretty damn high score. And when it comes time for the end of the year, I, quite frankly, I don't know what I will have played that will have beat it. I mean, it's not Mario Kart, and I don't think it's anything on a third platform, third party, third uh, other other platform. I mean, I just don't know. I'm so infatuated with this with this game and, and with this development team. It's it's their it's just the way that they've. It's just the personality they put into this game. It's just it's everything that I want from a video game right now. It, it ties back to what I loved when I was a kid. It still has a lot of the modern sensibilities. Uh, you can play it for two minutes and still have a good time. You don't have to spend five minutes just getting through an opening cutscene before you can do anything. Like That's one of the things I, I really like about playing Virtual Console NES games on my 3DS is that you know, and anything else you pick up, you have, to, you have to spend five minutes going through menus and to actually get to a game. Um, and with with Shovel Knight, it's got that same old school NES. You know, pick up and play for thirty seconds, and then and then your kid needs to go outside, and then you put the 3DS down like thirty seconds later. Like that's my life now. I don't get to play games for an hour anymore. So this is perfect for me. Yeah, I mean, I made the comment, and I well. I made a comment on one point after beating this game that all their games are bullshit because I played Shovel Knight. And it's <laughs> kind of how I feel. And, like, it's to the point where I was playing 1001 Spikes, and I was playing that before I played Shovel Knight. I guess what I'll refer to as BSK, 
the the time before Shovel Knight, and I really enjoyed <laughs> the Thousand and One Spikes when I played it before I played Shovel Knight. And then I played Shovel Knight, and I actually went back because uh, for for our review that's up on the site, uh, I played some of the multiplayer because uh, our reviewer Clay Johnson didn't have anyone to play multiplayer with. So uh, I played some of the multiplayer and realized, like, fuck, why isn't this just Shovel Knight? Like, this sucks. <laughs> and it's it's not that 1001 Spikes is a terrible game or anything, but it's just that it's it's not necessarily what I want in a platformer. And like Andy said, like, Shovel Knight is pretty much what I what I dreamt it would be when I first heard the, the you know, the elevator pitch for it when they launched the Kickstarter, which I didn't really think as... As much as I have faith in those guys, after making a lot of games that I like, there was a part of me that's just like, I don't know, man. Like, everything I'm seeing looks good, but like, it's gonna turn out and be shitty, right? Like, I just had that that like that fear in the back of my mind, and then I played the game, and that was complete opposite. No, no, no immediately, no immediate complaint comes to mind with this game, except for that it ends. So, what do you guys think of the length of the game? I'm curious. I was fine with yeah. it. My, my final time was just under seven hours. Yeah, I yeah. think I was I was right around, I think it was like six and change. Yeah, mine was like six and three quarters maybe. Um, and that's I think that's a really respectable length for a $15 game. I have no real beef with it, except for that it felt short. Like, and maybe that's just because I loved it so much, but I was not ready for it to end. And I just, and that's, that's why I went back and started playing New Game Plus pretty much right away. Like, I was actively stalling... Thing beating the game for some, you know, to some extent. So was I. I just didn't want it to end. <laughs> I got to the last boss's chamber, and I was like, I'm going to do this tomorrow. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think that's also where a lot of, like, the getting 100% comes into play. They have all those feats there. I mean, I I assume none of us finished the game at 100%. I think I was at 82% when I finished it. 87. Uh, around 60-something. Yeah. I think I must only be missing music pages. Yeah, um, I think I'm like 10 music pages short or something. Maybe. What's the max know. health? Is it 10? 10. Okay, I'm yeah. at 9. It's 10 and 100 for the 100 for the yeah. magic. Yeah. Although one of the one of the armors gives you 150. Uh, yep. Magic for exchange in exchange for defense, I think. Right. Right. That's what I like. There is no armor that it's like this is the OP shit. Go for it. Like there's a drawback yeah, to everything, true. or at least like, you know, this one will give you you know better defense, but. Well, that's why I wanted the that's why I wanted the ability to swap them out because like I, I, I bought the the momentum armor the heavy armor, and immediately I regretted it like a couple of minutes into a stage and I had to actually quit back out just to take it off. What does that do? I haven't seen it. That's the one that where you're kind of like always on ice a little bit like you have trouble stopping on a dive. Oh yeah, but you can't yeah. get knocked back either. Yeah, enemies yeah. can't knock you back yeah. though. That's what I used for the whole game actually. Nice. I died like Ooh. twice because I miscalculated how far I would need to land on a platform to not just walk off the edge. And uh, after that, I, I went back to the uh, the treasure armor, I think. So I guess uh, as we kind of, I guess, start to wrap this up, um, Alex and Zach, uh, you have both written reviews or will be writing reviews. Um, I'm in the process of writing. By the, by the time this goes up, I believe both of your reviews will be posted. Um. So, what, like, I guess, what, what's the takeaway from your review? I guess, what, what's your score? Mine is, uh, I gave it a 9. It was, it was like, so, the reason why I didn't give it a 10 is that, uh, like, my, my one tiny complaint in the game, and I wouldn't even call it a complaint because it did everything it tried to do so well, 
is that Shovel Knight, like, it takes so many elements from so many games and does them so well that there's this one tiny part in my head that goes, you know, I try to think of the stuff that's unique to Shovel Knight, and, like, it has the story, it has the shovel, kind of, but then that's mostly it. Like, But the shovel's like the primary mechanic in the game. I, no, I'm saying that he holds a shovel, even though it acts as, like, kind of a weird sword. And I, like, I, I don't want to rag on the game too much, but I think it takes so much personality from other games and makes it its own that it, maybe I, I just see it having a tiny bit of difficulty. I don't disagree with you, but I think it's just more obvious about it. I think it's just more blatant about it. Every game takes everything from every other game. I can't think of a game that I've played before that's like Shovel Knight. Like, there are games that are reminiscent of it, but it's in the same way as that, like, I played Super Mario Galaxy, and there were games that were sim- similar to Super Mario Galaxy, but it was not Super Mario Galaxy. Well, like, Shovel Knight takes the best parts of old games and none of the bullshit. I can and, see what you're um, saying. Like, it's not like one of those indie games that's got, like, a really interesting brand new mechanic, and maybe... And, and I can see what you're saying for that, but like other other platformers or other things on Nintendo consoles, I guess I should say, aren't exactly brimming with originality. I would say that Shovel Knight, ha- even even in its shameless stealing from other games, um, I think that in and of itself, the the way in which it blatantly steals from other games is sort of unique to Shovel Knight. Sure. Every, every other That's, game tries to the, hide it. It's the dark siders of 2D platformers. <laughs> it's like it's not like I took a point away. It's just that's the one thing that like kept it from getting a yeah, really yeah. perfect score sure. for me. But to end on a really positive note for my review, the reason why I gave it a nine, which is an extremely positive review, is that uh, it, it's an excellent game. Yada yada, as we said before. But I am extremely sensitive to indie games in the sense that as soon as I see a meme. Or as soon as I see, uh, like, even a hint of the game being pretentious in its writing. So basically the mechanics. entirety of Guacamelee? Absolutely. Aww, I, 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 Guacamelee I start is fun. to shut down in my head, and I'm like, fuck this game. This game had none of that. Like, everything it set out to do, it did excellently. Everything it tried to do, it it met my expectations and went above that. Like, I'm thinking of my two other favorite indie games ever, Bit Trip Runner, Runner 1 and Hotline Miami. I don't know if it beats out Hotline Miami, which is, like, a pure orgasm to me as far as independent <laughs> game development goes, but I think Shovel Knight might be number two. Like, I mean, if if you have read, uh, not to go on a Hotline Miami tangent here, but if you have read anything that I've written for other websites, you will know that I fucking hate video game violence. Like, it really bugs me, sincerely. Like, I don't have any joy in Grand Theft Auto games. Hotline Miami is one of the most brutal video games I have ever played, but it does it in such an abstract, wonderful way that it's just like, it's 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 this high-score game in which you are beating the shit out of people mercilessly. It's not and Laura Croft being impaled on a stick in a river? Like, it's just like, I mean, it's like, it made me rethink how I feel about video game violence, because it's just this this really unrelentless game, but it's done in such, it's it's from a top-down perspective, and your goal is to just go in and fucking murder people. And it's super bloody, and you're beating people to death with, like, baths and stuff. It is it is an incredible game. Um, if you have not played it, I highly recommend you find it. It, it is, like, just, yeah. If it can compete with one of my favorite games possibly ever, 
I, I think Shovel Knight is... That says something really good about Shovel Knight. I, th- I think uh, the, the takeaway for Hollow Miami is that I, I think it's like the Joker of video games. <laughs> that was kind of how I could sum it up. That it's insane but wonderful. What say you, Zach? Uh, I'm going all the way. Double digits? Double digits for me. It's okay. in the same league as Runner 2. Now, now, just just because this is probably a conversation we're going to have off air, too, but we might as well have it here. Um, do you have any issues with the game? Me? Personally? Yeah. yeah. No. Anything. Anything at Aside all. Aside from the armor swapping not you. being there, not really at all. And and here's why. I mean, you might say it's a hard game, but it, and it is a hard game, but it's fair. Yeah, the, the checkpoints, at it, least in the regular... They're like the the regular game are really fairly spaced out. New game yeah, plus, they're you, a little bit of an asshole. You can asshole. make it harder, as hard as you want it want to. Like you can destroy the checkpoints if you want, or you can do, you can play New Game Plus, and and that's basically a hard mode. And but you know everything everything the game does is just so so right. I mean, the game just feels so right. And so, the music is, we haven't talked about the music, but the music is phenomenal. So, Zach, I'm, I'm curious because, Zach, I, I know you went into this review kind of blindly because you haven't been following coverage of the game. Neil and I have both been, like, salivating over this game for, you know, a good 14 months now. Um, so, I guess, were you actively avoiding looking into this game? Was it, like, what was it that, that, fed your disinterest prior to getting your hands on it? Uh, I don't follow Kickstarters generally. I mean, even Shantae Half-Genie Hero, I've kind of stopped caring about, and I won't see it again until it comes out. So it's just like a matter it, of, you know, it's not really a product until it's a yeah, product. exactly. It's yeah. ethereal until like, it happens. Zach, you're some person who likes Shantae a lot. Why the fuck are they making two Shantae games? I don't know. I don't fucking know, because... Because they already promised us Pirate's Curse. Which is now coming then, to Wii U and 3DS. And then we have know, another but, Wii U game. Yeah. I, why is it on Wii U? It doesn't make any sense at all. That's why it's been delayed several months. You, you, I like how you sent that comment <laughs> to me uh, at E3 being like, oh, you get to play Shantae 3. You do realize that's been at, like, that was at, like, PAX Prime and New York Comic Con. Like, I know. That, Shantae, I mean, you should be pissed that Nintendo didn't show up to PAX, PAX East because Shantae 3 would have been there I, if they did. You know how I old am. that game is? That was in, an, in an, uh, one of the last issues of Nintendo Power. Nintendo Power. But, Neil, you know what? You know what uh, Half Genie Hero makes me think of, Neil? When you and me and Andrew were all sitting down talking to Matt Bozon and, and <laughs> Boldy Way, dude was like, would you guys rather see an HD remake of Shantae or Shantae 3? And we were like, uh, both? And then they, and did they both. made it so happen. Maybe, maybe that's our fault. I would like to think we had some part in that decision, good or bad. See, all right. I guess, uh, I guess I can never complain about them being two Shantae games because <laughs> me, you, and Andrew might be partially responsible. <laughs> exactly. Anyway, I'm, I have high hopes for Shantae Three, but I think it's going to be delayed again before we see it. Um. Man, yeah, Shovel Knight's fucking awesome. I and, uh, love the fuck out of it. I'm yeah. playing through it again, and I think I'm going to play through it on normal 
now uh, and take a break from New Game Plus just so I can do the achievement for breaking all the shit. So one quick thing before we before we wrap it up, uh, and this is going to be hard for any of us to really answer because we've all only played it on one platform, I think. But Oh, I'm double dipping, baby. But, but you haven't yet, so here's my question. This is the one thing that everyone really wants to know who wants to get this game, uh, who didn't back it, I suppose, at least. What's the best platform to get it on? What do you guys think? I think 3DS, personally. I think 3DS. I would say Wii U, uh, specifically because I think it's just such a cozy game. And I, I guess cozy can uh, take many forms for many people, and cozy to some people is a handheld. But to me, cozy is having it on the big screen, as sharp as possible, on the Wii U, just on a couch is, with a it blanket. It's a good-ass looking game. See, I think maybe TV, if I had a 3DS XL, I might enjoy it more on the 3DS, but my stupid yeah. launch 3DS just kind of... I hate controlling on it. I know we've been listening to, to John Lindemann talk about how much he hates Super Mario Brothers 3, and then what's that? This week on RFN, he talked about how he started playing it on Wii U, and it's fine because the 3DS yeah. D-pad just kind of sucks. Um I'm a, I'm really looking forward to playing this game on Wii U, not because I hate the 3DS D-pad, but because I don't love it, and I kind of want to play this game yeah. with a better control scheme. I played it with the Circle Pad on the 3DS. I'm starting Although I do to. have an XL. Does your guys' D-pad on, I mean, on 3DS squeak? I no. have an XL, so yeah, I don't XL, know. So never. Or, or Mine like, kind of squeaks like it's like rubber on plastic. Oh, you know my my old my old launch unit did that it's too. It's so weird. Me. I hate that stupid thing. The, the one thing that I guess talking about the 3DS version, uh, one the stereoscopic 3D in this game looks beautiful. Yes. Oh god, it looks yeah. Really, really nice. And the Street Pass stuff. I hope that I actually pass people who uh, who have the game because the Street Pass stuff is super interesting. Hey Neil, um, give it a month. Yeah. Because <laughs> I'll be there in a month. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'll bring my 3DS. I mean, dude, I haven't passed anybody with friggin' Tamagotchi yet. I, I passed through. Well, actually, well, I have one friend who I convinced him, and then his girlfriend got a 3DS. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, Zach, uh, Anna, uh, like, uh, nice. she bought a 3DS because of Tomodachi Life. All right, give uh, her my QR. Give her my QR. Yeah, code I think I, I think I actually hers. I gave I gave Billy yours, but we can nice. talk about that off this. Um, yeah, so yeah, the Street Pass yeah. stuff in Shovel Knight. The way it works is that uh, it's sort of like a street pass battle that kind of reminds me, I guess, in in the initial setup as to Link Between Worlds, but you actually set up the path that your character moves. So what it is is that, like, you, you, you will always, um, you start from the left side of a screen, and there's basically, like, a couple platforms and gems, and the goal is to either uh, get the most gems or defeat your enemy. And you record you moving and, like, you know, kind of, like, trying to anticipate where the other player is going to be to try to see if you win. And there's three rounds. So I I think it's going to be really cool when I actually, if slash when I street pass people with it. Because I, I really, like, like the idea of that. Because it is something where, like, you are controlling it. and And when you play against them, like, you actually control... You control your character when you're going against them. Fighting a robot. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. Like, it's weird, but I think it'll be really cool. I'm, I'm getting it on 3DS because of the law of portability. Yeah. I'll play it more on a portable. This is true. All right, so uh, that, that does it for our Shovel Knight talk. 
Um, we'll do a little bit of spoiler talk right after this. Um, yeah. So if you uh, if you've already beaten the game, um, which I don't know, I mean you you could probably burn through it in a day if you're really dedicated. Um, take your time though. Uh, but whenever you're done, uh, listen to this last part that's going to start really soon. If you don't want to be spoiled, uh, leave right now. If you don't care, stick around. Bye. Um, so I really like the final boss. I, I I just like the whole setup of that. I heard some people complaining that it was a little easy, but I think it really worked well, kind of going back to the whole story setup as well. Yes. The first time that Shield Knight jumps in the air and uses her shield to block the shots on that final boss. It's, like, like beautiful, man. I, I almost, I just, like, threw my arms up and, and celebrated. Like, that was just so well <laughs> done. Because it just, it really ties it all together in a meaningful gameplay way. Like, this whole setup of, like, you know, him and him and Shield Knight were inseparable, and they were this great duo, and then you see it in action, and it's just like, all right, yes. yeah, you guys fucking get it. Well, and it's, sub- like, the whole story, like, subverts the rescue the princess sort of paradigm even further. Like, it, you know, it turns out that the princess you're rescuing is really the villain, and then she becomes, like, your partner in the end, and she, you and her are really equals by the end of the game. And that's awesome. Yeah, and then yeah. there's the moment at the end where, uh, in the, in the post-credits where, so, what what happens is, um, so Shovel, you, Shovel Knight and Shield Knight, you'd like defeat, like, the, the evil amulet thing. Entrant, Enchantress. Yeah, well, well, I guess, is that still the Enchantress? Or is it just, like, the embodiment of evil? I think it's her ghost or something. Yeah, it's the Um, evil power that created the Enchantress. Yeah, so you beat the final boss, and then, like, Shield Knight gets, like, messed up, and then Shield Knight's kind of holding down the fort and tells the Black Knight, who's this character who is kind of like a mercenary that, like, Like doesn't like Shovel Knight, but also loves Shield Knight. Um, So, you know, uh, Shield Knight tells... Uh, Black, the Black Knight to take Shovel Knight away because he's he's injured and takes him back to the the campground, and then in the post credits sequence, uh, Shield Knight comes crawling back and then just lies down right next to Shovel Knight. It just, it's just oh man, it's oh, so, that was good. so cool, so good. It's a perfect feel good moment at the end of a feel good game. Yeah. Did anyone else expect them to pull a Metroid and have Shovel Knight pull off his mask at the end and just be a girl? I think that's going <laughs> to be in one of the. Uh, uh, stretch goals. Yeah. Shovel lesbians. Ha! Gender swapping. Well, I know the gender swap. So does that mean they'll make like Shield Knight a, a guy? I don't know. I think maybe. Yeah. Yeah. I haven't. I'll, I'll be completely honest. Despite backing the Kickstarter, I didn't really pay attention to it because I just got to a point where I'm like, all right, when, when's this coming out, guys? Yeah. 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 I liked. I liked how they showed a little montage of like. Where all the order of no quarter nights. I are thought now. I thought all that was really funny. I like the one where the the Tinker, um, Tinker Knight. Tinker Knight's making toys. Making toys for the children. Yeah. <laughs> and then they just have the the Polar Knight just like staring off into the wilderness. I don't even think they <laughs> say what he's doing. He's did just... you guys did you guys talk to the knights after the the boss rush mode? Yeah. yeah towards yep. the end. I just like how they like some of them are like, well, you're better than I thought, and some of them are like, you still suck. <laughs> like it just showed a lot of personality in what the what those guys had to say after you just beat them all one more time. I also really like the I'd like to see the character art for all those knights, like especially the Sky Knight. He was really hilarious to me. I think that's all in the Kickstarter actually. Yeah, I do oh, distinctly really? remember uh watching one of their streams early on in which I think it was a 
uh, Waz, who's like the the animator over at Yacht Club, of him animating Propeller Knight and just being like, like I, I basically watched him animate this sprite for like an hour and a half. <laughs> and I would say the they, they revealed the, the, the enemy knights one by one sort of as the Kickstarter went on, and they usually did so with a with like a full-size like concept art. Yeah, and maybe oh, even cool. like an animated I'll GIF, too. I'll have to look too. at their Kickstarter. Yeah. Um, like, and, and I mean, honestly, I would like to see, I know this is probably getting ahead of the game, but I'd like to see, like, HD sprites, cartoon sprites, like DuckTales sprites for all these characters. Well, also, the Zach, same do, game. do you know what some of the, the content that's being added? Like, I believe... Some of the stretch goals where, like, you'll be able to play as some play of as the... Play the bosses, yeah. Yeah, play, play as the bosses. Man powered up. And there's going to be a battle mode, too. So I think and a challenge can, mode. You can fight against all the bosses, and I think you can control them. I'm not 100% sure. It's all the bosses in battle mode, and then I think three bosses in uh, the main game proper. Cool. Main oh, game man, game I can't game. wait. The soundtrack's coming out this week, too, I think. Yeah, soundtrack's oh, by Oh, I Bert. need it. Yeah, I'll probably pick that up. I need up. it bad. Jake Kaufman, man, he makes some good video game soundtracks. And for the soundtrack as well, I believe that there's, like, you know, the arranged version, and then there's, like, a big ridiculous, like, one with, like, remixes and shit. Huh. Um, and it's all going to be up on Bandcamp on Thursday, I think. Nice. What did you guys think of those two, like, Wily Castle sort of stages? I liked them. They, they were, were hard. Pretty good. I, I wish them. there was more of them. Yeah. I, I, I think it could have standed to have a third Wily like castle level because the third like one was try, you could tell they tried to make the third one kind of a level and a boss fight but it really needed to be split up they uh they pulled the new super mario bros with it how uh, in the later new super mario bros games what they do is they basically make the level smaller and just they make the last level focus almost exclusively on the boss but i did not oh, man yeah, that, that fucking game i'm probably going to get off this and just play more. Alright, uh, thanks everybody for listening. If Go buy you it. Go listen buy to all this, it. Go buy it. Um, <laughs> you probably should have already bought it. Uh, email us your shovel thoughts at connectivity at nintendoworldreport.com. Bye. 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 Alright, now we'll do it for episode 139 of Connectivity. As always, you can send your listener mail to connectivity at nintendoworldreport.com. Uh, you should rate and review us on iTunes if you haven't done that yet, and be sure to follow everyone on Twitter. Go to NintendoWorldReport.com, look for the Twitter sidebar on the right-hand side of the page, and you'll find all of our information there. Uh, and now, if you'd be so inclined, stick around for a bonus segment all about space. But the ultimate and most dangerous test was a huge, specially constructed vacuum chamber. They were able to pull all the air out to create a big vacuum, just like it would be on the moon. That way we could test our suits to make sure there was no leakage. One such test narrowly avoided disaster. Jim LeBlanc was the test subject in the vacuum chamber. Cliff Hess, the supervising engineer outside. Testing started just normally, like they all do. Uh, 
and Jim was at a vacuum in a spacesuit. With all the air sucked out, all that protected him was his pressurized suit. Then something happened. I heard over the headset that he was losing suit pressure. The tube pressurizing his suit had become disconnected. He was in serious danger. There really wasn't any feeling. It was just happening so fast, you know, trying to get the chamber back to a safe pressure and Jim to a safe pressure. It was inside the suit. As I stumbled backwards, I could feel the saliva on my tongue starting to bubble just before I went unconscious. And that's kind of the last thing I remember. Uh, essentially, he had no pressure on the outside of his body, and that's a very unusual case to get, and there's very little in the medical literature as to what happens when you have that. There's a lot of conjecture, you know, that your fluids will boil. Within 25 seconds, a co-worker, sitting in a partially pressurized antechamber and wearing an oxygen mask, was able to dash in. At the normal rate of repressurization, it would have taken 30 minutes to make the chamber safe. Hess repressurized it in just over a minute. That's much, much faster than you would ever come down in an airplane. It would uh, really hurt your ears if you did that. Finally, it was safe to let a doctor in. Miraculously, LeBlanc had already regained consciousness. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another bonus segment of Connectivity. Uh, I am Scott Thompson, and uh, today I'm with Dr. Jonathan Metz. blurp a derp <laughs> Official doctor talk. Uh-huh. And um, we are back for another space segment. Uh, we haven't, we were just talking about it before we started recording. We haven't done one of these since the live show back in November. There's been a lot of talk, and I've just been busy and scheduling and all that kind of stuff, but we're making it happen. Yeah, it's, it was never meant to be a regular thing, but uh, no, no. hopefully we'll do it more regularly than this. Than, like, nine months. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. that would be good. I, I would like that, yeah. So, um, yeah, we've been wanting to do uh, one of these for a little while, and Johnny specifically has been interested in uh, talking about space suits. So that's going to be the focus of today's uh, segment. But before we start, Johnny, uh, ironically, or I guess coincidentally, actually, it'd probably be the year right term, but yesterday I was driving and on a terrible auto repair store sign, I saw a little joke that I thought you've probably maybe heard or would appreciate in just the worst way. Um, how does NASA organize a party? I don't know. How? They plan it. P-L-A-N-E-T. So. Uh, oh, uh, okay. That was actually worse than I was Yeah. Really was bad, expecting. right? That yeah, was just okay. randomly on like the marquee sign of an auto store in oh, like, wow. one town over. So there you go. That's what we're dealing with here in northwest yeah. Indiana. Wow. Um, yeah. <laughs> Kicking the show off right. Mm -hmm. So, Johnny, you wanted to talk about spacesuits. Um, so I'm just going to kind of get out of the way and, and let you start. Why, why, why specifically spacesuits now, uh, a few segments into this? Well, sp spacesuits are uh, one of my specialties. They're one of my the topics that I'm the most interested in, that I've studied the most. My uh, doctoral dissertation was related to spacesuits. Um, it wasn't about spacesuits in general, you know. I mean, that's not the way PhDs work. They're very specific and esoteric. But I, in the course of doing that, I learned 
a lot about spacesuits, and I became really kind of enamored with them because, and I I never really thought about it this way before I studied it academically, but I I think one way I could express it that I think may sort of pique people's interest and maybe maybe people, you know, like spacesuits are so recognizable. Um, a lot of a lot of times when you ask people like what pops into your head when you think of NASA, for instance, a lot of people mm-hmm. will think of spacesuits. Um, or if you showed someone a spacesuit and you said, "What does this make you think of?" they would say NASA. Like it's incredibly recognizable because it's the spaceship that looks like a human. It's the spaceship that you wear, and that was one of the the revelations for me as I learned more about them that made me so much more interested in them than I had been before. Because it's really it really is its own spaceship. It's self-contained in a lot of respects. And there's different kinds, and some of them are more have more features than others. Some of them are more like complete space spaceships than other suits but uh, like the ones that you see people floating in outside when they're doing a spacewalk that suit has everything needed to keep a person alive and help them be uh, productive and and maneuverable uh, for you know you usually over eight to twelve hours um, and so in some cases even longer than that um, you know if you think about uh, people going to the moon you have to think about spacesuits. Like, that's that's the way that we interacted with the moon. You know, I mean, Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin and all the other guys in Apollo, they didn't, like, reach out and touch the moon with their bare hand. They did it through a spacesuit. So the spacesuit is kind of the interface between us and space. And it's a way for us to get, for us, when I say us, I mean humans, it's a way for us to get closer to space than we are when we're just all sitting inside of a capsule or a space shuttle, for instance. So, like, spacesuits are very intimate they they wrap around your body, so I mean they they are the shape of humans, and they look futuristic. Even like old school spacesuits kind of look futuristic. Um, and well, yeah, uh, and they're so, they're so iconic still. I mean, I feel like even the original like spacesuit designs or like the you know from the Apollo missions to the moon and stuff. I feel like still inspire uh, what you see like even in science fiction. Like even space marine armor to me looks like modified you know, like spacesuits. It's yeah, crazy. Exactly. And um I, I was uh, on my PS four last night and flipping through uh the store um to uh, download an update to a game and I and I saw that uh, Call of Duty Ghosts has a new add on pack that lets you use a, an astronaut as your avatar in the game. Mm-hmm. And of course you know, like out of a suit, an astronaut looks like another person, right? So <laughs> right. when they, when they say you can pay five dollars and play as an astronaut in Call of Duty, I don't know why you would want to, other than it being <laughs> totally silly. I guess for the same reason you might want to get like a Snoop Dogg voice sample pack for the same, which you could do for the same game. You could mix and match right. those two things. Actually, <laughs> now I kind of want to get Call of Duty, but. Um, but you know, like the the avatar that they're selling is actually a spacesuit. You know, um, so you can't even necessarily see the person inside. What you see is the suit. So it's a very personal kind of of spaceship. And and when I say spaceship, that's not a joke. Like it really has um, almost all of the features that a spaceship has. It's just they've all been personalized. They've all been made for one person. So a spacesuit, um, you know, is pressurized, so it protects you from vacuum. You know. Um, it, it provides air to you so that you can breathe. It has uh, waste management stuff in it, usually a diaper. Um, there's some other features that are, you know, kind of related, but usually those aren't used very much. But you wear a diaper so you can you can go pee-pee, you can go potty in there if you have to. <laughs> and you're, if you're wearing it for 8 or 10 hours, you know, it's reasonable that you might need to do those things. Yeah, you would think so. Yeah. Um, they have bags of water with a straw in the helmet that you can drink. And, of course, you need to do that too, especially over that long a period of time. They have 
little uh, food bars. They're kind of like granola bars, but they're really dense, and those are in the helmet also. So if you get hungry, you can reach over and grab those. Although the astronauts I've talked to about this say they usually would just – they're like really high-calorie, like dense kind of uh, protein bars, but they're also a little bit crumbly. So a little bit messy and greasy, and so they don't really like to eat them during the mission because then whatever you get on your face, you can't get it off until, yeah, you, t- you go back inside. So um, so usually he said they would eat them right before they went out there. So you still get the energy from it when you need it, um, but that way you don't have to deal with the actual eating of it when you can't really use your hands to, to help you. And so what, that's within, like, a reach of your teeth? Like yes, you would just... it's it's like wow. mounted. There's like a little clip inside the helmet that you can sort of twist your head over. Because, you know, like 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 the, the, the EVA suits or the spacewalking suits that you see, they're kind of the most visible ones where you see someone floating and they're like attached by a tether um, to the – you know, like in Gravity, um, the one you see there, there's, there's actually a few different spacesuits in Gravity, which is one of my favorite things about the movie. Um, but the, the most iconic one, it has that big bubble helmet, and you can actually move, you can twist your head inside the helmet without the helmet itself moving. So you actually have a little bit of headroom in there. You can move your head around, you can twist, you know, and so they, things like the water straw and the food, they actually mount off to the side. So they're not like in your way, but if you need them, you can just kind of turn your head over and, uh, and get to them. Get to them, sure. Um, and, and and there's other things. I mean, it has radiation protection. It has garments that protect you if, like, a little tiny meteoroid comes. It's, it has layers that are supposed to kind of uh, catch that and, like, keep it from puncturing the bladder that's on the inside um, that holds all your breathing gas. They cool you. They have – the backpack is full of all kinds of equipment that takes out your carbon dioxide and it takes out all the humidity that you're breathing out so that it doesn't get foggy in there. Um, they have lights built in. They have, like, little warmers in the gloves to keep your fingers warm because those get really cold because there's less insulation on those. Right. Um, so they they all have, like, at least a little bit of propulsion even. There's a system um, in the, the United States version of the spacesuit that goes outside called the SAFER. And that thing, I forget what – it's an acronym, of course, because NASA. I don't <laughs> forget exactly yeah. what it stands for. But basically it's a little tiny, like, aerosol jet – and it probably is like uses nitrogen gas or something like that. But um, if you ever get uh, loose from your tether, which is what happens in gravity because of a crazy explosion, right? But um, if you ever like go tumbling, you have it. It's like kind of a one shot. Like it's really there's only enough gas in there because it's small. Um, there's only enough gas for like a one shot deal, and you just kind of have to guess because you're not going to be doing like orbital mechanics calculations in your head to try to figure out how to get back to where you want to go, but you can just kind of point and you fire it and it'll shove you in that direction. And hopefully you get there or maybe somebody can catch you. Um, There's also, there's a much more grandiose version of that that you might've seen in photos. It's called the, uh, oh gosh, now I'm going to forget the name, but it was the, the manned mobility unit or the MMU. And this was the jet pack. And if you, if you ever see a, a spacesuit like in a video game or a movie, like the one, like uh, George Clooney and Gravity had one of these. These pop up a lot, even though NASA only used it twice because it's really expensive. It's, it doesn't last very long. And they don't really need it for the kind of spacewalks that they usually do. But this thing lets you completely separate from the, the, the vehicle that you came up in. Um, and it lets you, f- like free float, just attached to nothing, um, which has got to be the scariest thing ever. <laughs> I was just gonna say that. Yeah, but this this thing has jets pointing in like six different directions, so you can 
you know, you can turn, you can shove off, you can translate up, down, left, right, forward, back, you can spin, you can do all this stuff. And it doesn't, like, you don't have much uh, fuel in it because it's, you know, they had to make it lightweight and kind of small and still fit around you. It's kind of like sitting in a big chair anyway, so it's, you know, like, it's a little bit cumbersome. But uh, but you can use it, and you can fly around, and they, they did it a couple of times. There's a really, really famous photo from the first time it was used. This uh, pretty famous astronaut named Bruce McCandless, uh, who's still kicking around. I've never met him, but some of my friends have met him and gotten to talk to him. I would love to hear wow. his stories. But he, he was the first person to use that MMU, and uh, it is the spacesuit jetpack, and it lets you completely detach from the shuttle or whatever else you're in or the space station, and you can fly around all the way around, you know. You can go and you can just face. You can go way out and you could come back in. They, I mean, they were worried about whether or not it would work, right? So they were pretty safe about it. He stayed really close, and they had people standing by to, go, like, go out and catch him if they had to. Sure. But uh, that thing is awesome, you know. I mean, unfortunately, like, when you see in Gravity, George Clooney uses it way more than that thing actually carries <laughs> enough fuel for. Right. Um so it's still limited by, you know, rocket science uh, being what it is. There's only so much you can do with it, but it's still, like, the coolest thing ever, I think. Right. So spacesuits have all these features that a spacecraft normally provides, but now they're all, like, miniaturized, and they're wrapped up into, like, these, these you know, this backpack has – it's crazy. If you, like, slice open the backpacks on those spacesuits, the amount of stuff in there would blow your mind. They're really packed tightly, and they do they have so much stuff in them. And, uh, you know, batteries, of course, because you can't make your own power and you're not necessarily connected by a power cord to anything else. So they have uh, they have uh, these um, liquid cooling garments that have these little plastic tubes that run all over your skin and it flows water through there and it cools the water through another device called the sublimator um, that basically likes it's kind of like a boiler system, but it like it basically melts uh, water and spits it out overboard. So you're like kind of creating this fog behind you as you go around on your spacewalk and that's how they cool the suit because your body is producing all this heat and the heat is all trapped inside the space in the suit. suit in the insulated suit yeah exactly so the suit the suit is weird because it it totally protects you from the outside environment but it also makes it very difficult for you to interact with that environment and you know space you might say well that's I don't really want to interact with space. I just want to survive it. But for things like cooling, it's very difficult to remove heat from your body if your body isn't exposed to some kind of environment where it can exchange heat, mm-hmm. which is what we have now. You know, I mean, my all my heat exchanges uh, with the air that's in the room, which is being circulated by the air conditioner, and it's being cooled by that also, or I could open a window. You don't have that in a spacesuit. There's only a little bit of air. It's just like a pocket a couple inches deep that's all around your body, and that air will heat up very, very quickly if you don't move it and if you don't take that heat out of it. So uh, it'll also fill up with carbon dioxide, so you would suffocate if you don't scrub all that stuff out. So it's like it's an incredibly complex machine that has been, like, miniaturized so much from what you're used to in a space vehicle. Um, and, and all the tricks that they've done to do that and all the compromises they've had to make and all the advancements that they had to do, uh, I just find all that stuff super interesting. So that's the very long answer to your question <laughs> of why do I want to talk about these in the first place It's because I love sure. them to death. And, I, and I, think, I think other people would be more interested in spacesuits if they actually kind of stop for a minute to think about how cool they really are and, like, how amazing it is that we can do so many things with this thing that you literally just wear, you know. Right, because I think like your your 
the average person, the baseline understanding is like, oh, well, it provides you with oxygen, and then it kind of stops there. But as you're describing these things, you're like, oh, well, that makes sense, of, of course, you know, as far as insulation and getting rid of heat and food and water and all these types of things. Um, as far as the, how the spacesuit has come, uh, how you're describing it now, I mean, that that's the modern spacesuit. Was it on this level when we were first entering space and for, like, you know, Apollo 13 and different missions to the moon? I mean... Were they at this level that that soon, or is a lot of this, I guess, newer uh, advancements, or what were the suits like, you know, 20 and 30 years ago, well, I guess now 40 years ago when we were, you know, first trekking into space? Right. Yeah, it's a great question. Actually, the the first American spacewalk was about 50 years ago. I think it was 1963, a okay. guy named Ed White, and he did it. I want to say less than a year after the first the first ever spacewalk was uh, was Russian and it was a guy named Alexei Leonov. He was the first spacewalker, mm-hmm. probably one of the bravest people who ever lived. <laughs> if you can imagine, you know, if it's one thing. I mean, in like 1962, you got to be 12 kinds of crazy to go in space at all because like we're not even really sure how people are staying alive up in space. You're, he was only like the fifth person to ever go in space. Period. Right. And now you're gonna open the door and go outside. Well, that's what I'm thinking. That's why I'm amazed that people were able to enter out into space. Yeah, that there weren't more like accidents before we nailed it down. It's just amazing. Yeah. Well, there were a lot of close calls because they didn't really know what they were doing. They didn't have airlocks, so they actually had to, um, in order to open the door at all. You know, there's there's gas, there's air on the inside, and there's nothing on the outside. So like, you can't open the door when there's that much of a of a difference in the pressure. So in order to do it, he had to get in the suit inside the vehicle, and then they pumped out all the air from his capsule. Oh, wow. And then they open the door because now there's no difference in pressure. So now the, basically the inside of the capsule is kind of the same as the outside, right? Right, so he won't get, like, pulled out. Yeah. Right, and so now he goes outside, and he, at the time, the, he was wearing basically his flight suit. So it's kind of the same thing that, like, a fighter pilot would wear. So it's a pressure suit. It protects you in case um, in case you lose cabin pressure, basically. Um, but because they fly so high, you can't just put on a mask like you do in a commercial airliner. You need to have a whole suit on because the pressure can get so low at high altitudes or in space that you need a lot more protection. So that's why they had a suit in the first place. They, that suit was not designed to go outside. But they said, hey, what if we tried this? <laughs> um, so he had, a, he had an umbilical tube. Um, which I love, I love that word, and it's a word that probably most people don't use very much in real life, umbilical. I use it all the time because I'm in space. <laughs> right. um, but it, it really does look like that. It's just much like the tube that connects you to your mother's womb, you know, when you're a fetus or a newborn. Um, but it's a tube that connected his suit to the vehicle life support system, and it, and it basically transferred cold water um, well, actually, at the time, I think the first few were only cold air. They didn't have the liquid cooling suit like I described earlier because they hadn't. Sure. They didn't know that they needed that yet. What they found is the guys got really overheated because they were they were so stressed out and they were working so much harder than they than the suit was designed for, mm-hmm. and just blowing cold air through it wasn't enough. So they had to go and design liquid cooling garments instead. But um, so it was basically just blowing cold air in there, so he could breathe, <laughs> it maintained the pressure, and it cooled him a little bit, but not really enough. And that's all it did. It was just this tube that blew in and it blew out. And um, and with that, he went outside and just basically went out and kind of like waved around, and then had a kind of a hard time getting back in. And there was like, like a big scare 
um, as to whether they that he would actually be able to do it. And he came probably within a couple of minutes of of running out of oxygen and uh, wow. and really being screwed over. So and he was getting super hot because that that suit wasn't designed to go outside, so it wasn't designed to reflect off the heat of the sun, for instance. Um, and and it didn't have much insulation either, so either he was either going to like get way too hot or way too cold depending on where they were in orbit. But it it wasn't designed to kind of keep him at a normal temperature like the new ones are. So they learned a lot from that. And then when America saw him doing that, they said, "Oh, this they're way ahead of us. We got to catch up." And so like within months, it was on one of the Gemini missions, which was the second. Uh, tier second round of space missions that uh, that America did with humans um, after Mercury, but they like within I think it was something crazy like within six weeks some top brass at NASA said hey we want you to do that too, and mm-hmm. we had no idea I mean no one had ever done it before this like we didn't know how to do it so we're like looking at photos or like you know reading spy reports or whatever on the Soviet Union to figure out, try to figure out how they did it and also we're some of just like guessing. And they worked in a space – the first American spacewalk was like – went from zero to actually doing it within like six weeks. It's crazy. Wow. Just the mad – I mean I, those engineers must have not slept the entire time. And they've ended up doing it basically the same way. I think the Americans used an, an inflatable airlock, which is also like really – was like with technology way ahead of its time back then. They really did, hadn't worked out all the kinks. So that was really dangerous too. Um, but these, they were basically using flight suits. They were using fighter pilot suits to do these and, and had a lot of trouble because of that. So from that, they learned a lot of lessons and they figured out what they need to change to make it better. Because at this point, you know, Kennedy back in 63 or 64, uh, Kennedy, President Kennedy made his speech where he said, I want us to go to the moon by the end of the decade. Right. And so then we're thinking, well, if we go to the moon and we don't get out and walk around, no one's even going to believe that we did it. I mean, that would be a total waste, right? Even though it's way harder to do that, we have to do that or it doesn't count. So they were already thinking we need to now find ways to take people outside to let them walk around, which is a totally different thing that the original suits were not designed for at all. They need to be more independent. We can't have them just connected to the lander the whole time. They need to be able to walk around a lot farther and go collect samples and do work and then come back uh, and take photos of each other. So um, we started looking at all the technologies and like most spacesuit technology that we still use today was invented between 1964 and 1969. Wow, that's amazing. Five-year span, almost all the stuff that we still use now. Um, Some of that technology is really old. Some of it is in the process of being replaced by NASA and other people. Um, because, you know, it has certain issues and certain limitations that we'd like to do better. But that stuff works so well that the suits that are used right now in the International Space Station, like the ones you see in gravity, are mm-hmm. very, very, very similar to the Apollo moonwalking suits. Wow. There's a few changes because those don't have to go to the moon, obviously. So there's a few things, and there's a couple areas where, you know, the electronics have gotten a lot better, as you would expect. Well, yeah. The computers have gotten a lot better since the <laughs> 60s. Imagine that. Yeah. But uh, the actual, like, the life support technologies and stuff like that really have not changed very much at all. And even the design looks almost the same. Like, it's very, very similar. Um, so it's weird because, you know, the Apollo suit, they had to add, you know, built-in thermal controls so you could reject your heat because that way you didn't have to be connected. They had to design, you know, some of the most advanced batteries ever seen at that time because you had to be you had to be able to produce your own power if you're walking around independently. Um, 
They had dust covers. They had thermal insulation, stuff called multi-layer insulation, which is like uh, like very it's kind of like very thin sheets of aluminum foil, um, and it is actually partly aluminum, and uh, and and it's just like sometimes like a, over a dozen sheets of this stuff. It's like very very thin, but lots and lots of sheets stacked up, mm-hmm. and that stuff uh, is really effective in in vacuum. It's really effective at preventing uh, your heat from radiating out or from outside in. So that's that's the insulation, but it also is protects you against uh, any kind of like little tiny rocks that might impact you because all those layers slow it down. So hopefully it loses its energy and won't actually go all the way through and strike you. Completely penetrate, yeah. Yeah, which that's really scary because in a lot of ways the spacesuit is a balloon. I mean, you could say all spacecraft are kind of metal balloons, but a spacesuit isn't even a metal balloon. It's just a balloon. I mean, it's a, yeah. like the, the base layer that, that is the closest to your body is a rubber bladder. It's like a, you know, it's a whoopee cushion. It's a canteen, uh, whatever you want to call it. But um, it, it, it's, it's just a inflatable bladder that holds gas. And then every, there's a lot of layers on the outside of that that basically protect you and that bladder. From, from everything that can happen in space. And have there ever been situations where up in space anything's gone wrong with the suits while people have been out? I yes. Mean, I, I, oh, really? Oh, yeah. Even, like, fatally or people... No, who... not fatally, thankfully. Okay. Actually, uh, no American has ever died in space. I want to say there might might have been one one or two Russians who died in space. But uh, for Americans, all, all of our uh, astronaut fatalities happen either on the launch pad with Apollo 1 or during launch, like with Challenger, or on the way home in the atmosphere, like with Columbia. Right. So we've never actually lost a person in space, thankfully. Um, although, it, I mean, it certainly could happen. That's, you know, but in a lot of ways, um, you know, the, the, the way up and the way down are what we call dynamic phases of flight. So that's when you're, you know, you're sitting on top of a rocket or you're coming down and you're, you're getting all that heat from atmospheric entry. Um, in a lot of ways, those are the most dangerous. And when we're up in space, yeah, it's very dangerous, and there's a very thin wall between you and oblivion. <laughs> yeah. But it's rel- it's kind of quiet. You know, it's like relatively stable up there. I was going to say, it's like almost a controlled environment in a way. It's a well-known environment. Yeah. I'll say that. Um, so we feel, in a lot of ways, more confident about how to protect people when they're actually in space than we do on the way up or the way from space. Um, but, uh, there have been lots of problems. Um, there was a really famous one that actually happened about a year ago from when we were recording this. I was actually at a space conference about life support and spacesuits when oh, this wow. happened. There was a, in a, I don't think it was an American, I think it was one of the international astronauts that flies through NASA. Um, let's say he was maybe Italian, French or Italian. I'm sorry. I don't remember the, the, the person's specific details. Um, but this uh, astronaut was out on a spacewalk at the station, and uh, it wasn't anything as dramatic as in as in the movie. But uh, started water from his suit started leaking into the helmet. Oh God! And this is terrifying. I mean, this person the, and and you know water is very sticky. So in the absence of gravity, water tend, it has a high surface tension. It tends to just kind of stick the things. And then as more water goes, water also tends to stick to itself, so it will collect and pool on surfaces. If it's floating around, eventually, you know, you'll jostle it around enough that it will impact a surface and it'll probably stick to it. Well, the problem is one of the biggest surface in that helmet is his face. So as water just kept trickling out, they they ended up finding out it was some kind of broken pump, one of the pumps that pumps the water through his suit to help cool him. 
uh, was leaking because of some faulty filter or something. And the water was trickling into the suit, and it was collecting up in the helmet, and it started to stick to his face, and he said it was, like, collecting in his nostrils so he couldn't breathe through his nose anymore. That, that's was, what I was imagining, It was, yeah. like, it gets on his eyebrows, but then there's too much, and so it starts to get all in his eyes, and he can barely see, and uh, he's breathing through his mouth, and, like, he's out in space outside the vehicle, and he obviously, as soon as they detected this, he starts to go back. But it's, like, a 20- or 30-minute process oh, to get back man. inside. There's a lot of stuff you have to do, especially with the airlock. So, um, you know, and he was probably off at some workstation away from the door, so he had to move back towards the door, and that's a slow process and dangerous. So, um, and it, from all accounts, I heard um, he, like, was really cool and, like, did it perfectly, didn't freak out, because if he had freaked out, he might have died. Like, this yeah. could have gone really, really, really bad. And, uh, and it, it freaked out NASA big time. That's probably one of the worst things that's ever happened in a spacesuit. There were a mm-hmm. few things on Apollo where people got a little overheated sometimes. I think there were some battery issues. Um, and uh, there was actually this – is, this is kind of funny. When, on the later Apollo missions when they had the rover – the rover is like the coolest thing ever, by the way. It's the original electric car, one of the first electric cars ever made. Right. Uh, um, well, certainly since like the 19, 1910s, I think. I think one of the early Henry Ford models was electric, but then they abandoned it because they didn't, they didn't actually have, really have batteries back then. But um, anyway, on the rover, they were, you know, they, they took the rover to the moon because they wanted to be able to get farther away from the vehicle safely. So it could move faster. They could carry more gear because it's like walking on the moon is really difficult. The suits weren't terribly well designed for walking in that gravity and they fell down more than they walked, really. There's some <laughs> hilarious videos on – you can go on YouTube. These are real videos from Apollo of astronauts who fall down, and they can't get back up. And they're, like, <laughs> trying to, like, do push-ups and, like, trying to bounce up. And they're trying to help each other. But, like, if you fall down up there, it's really hard. So they did the rover to help get them around to more interesting places that were farther away. They could cover more ground, go see different kinds of terrain, collect different kinds of samples. But the problem is when you're on the rover, you're not walking, and so you're metabolic heat production goes way down and they were also being cooled by the rover the rover had its own cooling system that you would plug into when you sat on it so they had problems of astronauts getting way too cold when they're riding around on the rover because they're they're kind of sedentary like they're not doing anything they're just sitting right. there driving or, or even riding to the this location that might be a couple of miles away from the from the uh, lander and on the way out there, they got way too cold, and they had to get up and walk around, or they had to turn off the cooling on the rover. Um, so it was kind of a minor incident. But, yeah, there were a few things like that um, that uh, they got a little scary. I mean, I think any time you're in a spacesuit is probably really scary. You learn to control that over time right. with practice. But uh, I mean, the, the fact that that guy kept as cool as his helmet, you know, slowly filling up with droplets yeah, of water more amazing. and more. I mean, that's that's insane. It really is pretty crazy. Um so yeah, there there have been a few things like that, but you know, for the most part, they we we've ironed out a lot of the kinks, and and they do work really really well most of the time. Um, but you know, kind of the the future of spacesuits is is really interesting because you know, like I said, they haven't changed dramatically since uh, since the Apollo days. Um, we haven't really needed to because the stuff that we do around the space station, in a lot of ways, is easier than what we did on the moon. It's not easy, but it's a little bit easier than, than what we did on the moon, and, uh, and we have more resources. And so those same technologies that had to work on the moon, they also work 
in orbit around Earth, and so we just use those. You know, I mean, there have been small improvements, but nothing like really dramatic or sexy. Not, nothing that I could really describe to you that you would find very impressive. I think. Um, but that's starting to change. NASA is is funding a lot of technology development on spacesuit uh, features that are going to allow us to do a lot more. They're trying to get ready for things like going to an asteroid or going to Mars that will be a lot more challenging and will require uh, you know a lot a lot cooler stuff than what we currently need to do. You know the stuff we, we do on the space station mostly like mechanic work. You know, they're like construction workers. They go out with a bunch of wrenches and drills, and they attach big pieces of metal to the outside of the station. Or they open up a thing, and they mess around with a circuit breaker box. I mean, that's really the kind of stuff that, that they do out there. Um, you, go, you go to Mars, and that's a whole different thing, you know. So, um, so, yeah, we're starting to look forward to that, and there's a lot of really cool technologies that are being developed. Some of them have to do with thermal control, some of them have to do with mobility, some of them have to do with like designing better gloves so you can move your fingers more easily without working so hard and so they Uh don't like flake off your fingernails and stuff like that, Um, better kinds of insulation, um, different kinds of like uh, coatings on the outside that, uh, you know, that provide better um, radiation protection. Um, There's a lot of different things like smaller fans, better computers, like heads up, like helmet helmet mounted displays that like, and they don't have this right now, but like, you know, systems where like you could display, look like something from Terminator or a video game where like what you see, there's like all this information overlaid, you know, because it's like projected onto the inside of the sure, helmet. Sure, right, right. We don't have that like up, right now. Up to date data about what you're looking at basically. Yeah, exactly. And also better sensors about like what's happening with the astronaut's body and mind while they're in this suit, because right now we rely a lot on them reporting how they feel right. and what's going on. We don't have a lot of good data on what's happening with their body while they're in there. So um, some of that stuff is, is coming along, too. So, I, you know, and NASA recently had a design competition where they, they – I think they provided three different designs. Actually, I have a friend who works on that particular program and was, and was like, heavily promoting it um, – but uh, they, you know, they're they're all kind of superficial differences in the ones that uh, uh, that they were having people vote on. But they look really cool, and they got they you know people voted on a, what I think looks like a really cool design. For me, as an engineer especially, I'm more interested in the stuff inside, and right. I don't think they've gotten into publicly. They haven't gotten a whole lot of promotion about the stuff that they're working on to make the suit work differently and work better. But there is a, a lot of work going on in that. Yeah, that's pretty fascinating. That the especially like the display stuff and even being able to monitor uh, the astronauts inside the suits I think is uh, um, super interesting and obviously you see that a lot in sci-fi movies so I'm not surprised that that's kind of where they want to uh, want to take it. Yeah, I had a friend who was working on like a kind of an artificial intelligence that would help you map out like an like the best path if you're walking around on the moon or on Mars. Because the idea being that um, if you're far away from the from the vehicle or if you lose communication with the vehicle for for some reason, you need to mm-hmm. get back. Um, that your suit's onboard computer needs to be smart enough to help you find the best route. And it right, may, like it, the the fastest route and the one that would probably expend the least amount of energy. I exactly, would which may not even be obvious to your eyes. You know, depending on the it's an alien world, so the terrain may not be familiar. The different kinds of rocks and uh, 
you know, elevations that you might have to go over. You might not be able to see very well because the sun can be at all kinds of weird angles and maybe there's no atmosphere, so the shadows get really freaky and it's it's difficult to judge distances when you don't have an atmosphere because your eyes are are have evolved to depend on the atmosphere, you know, providing a certain level of detail, for instance, to help mm-hmm. you judge distance. You don't have that on the moon. So things look different even. Um so, yeah, I mean, there, there's a lot of really cool uh, ideas and technology. Some of them are a lot farther along than others, obviously. But it's exciting for me because because I know that spacesuits haven't changed that much over the past few decades. And, I, and I'm really ready for that to happen. Um, and, and it is happening. And I, I, I did my part, so other people are doing <laughs> theirs now, too. So what will it be the, the possibility of going to Mars? I mean, is that what's going to really push this forward now? Going, like you said, it's just been stable for so long that there hasn't really needed to be vast improvements or changes. Well, going anywhere new will be will be huge um, because, you know, even if we went back to the moon, there's a lot of things we would do differently um, than we did last time so that we could do more for less money or do more in less time um, over less missions and uh, and do things more safely, you know, of course. But also, you know, if we go even to an asteroid, it's not the most exciting destination for a lot of people, but it would be farther away than the moon, for instance. So when you're farther away, you know, a lot of the way that we do spacewalks now is a lot dependent on the station because that's where we do them. So the, the, all the resources that you have come from the space station. There are things that the space station has a lot of that you can use, you know, not willy nilly, but I mean, you can use sort of liberally when you're out on a spacewalk because you know when you go back inside, you can recharge it. If you're millions of miles away and way farther out even than the moon, you don't have those kinds of resources anymore. So the whole thing has to be more efficient for power, for gas, for all these things. Um, and uh, and then for Mars, whole different ballgame because Mars has an atmosphere. Mars has wind. Mars has weather. These things aren't on the moon. We've never had to design a spacesuit that can work in that kind of atmosphere. Sure. So it's a whole bunch of different challenges. And, you know, Mars has different level of gravity. It has more than the moon but less than Earth. So now we have to redesign all the stuff that involves walking and doing work in the suit. Now you have to redo all that stuff to make it work for Mars. Um, So there's just lots and lots and lots of, uh, of different considerations. So going anywhere new, exploration, that will drive new spacesuits. The other thing will be commercial because, you know, we're, we're looking at hopefully within the next few months even, uh, certainly the next few years, there will be a lot more commercial access to space so people can pay money and go to space. And they're probably not the first few years, but eventually they're going to want to go outside. Mm-hmm. And they're going to be willing to pay for it, which means there will be a company interested in finding a way to do that. And so they're going to have to do it probably more safely than we currently do, but also for less money. And those suits will be, they'll have to look cool. You know, I mean, the current astronauts may not really care how cool it looks, but if you're paying customer, (laughs) you will. So they'll look cooler and they'll be optimized to do the kinds of things that those customers want to do, which is different than what NASA is telling astronauts to do. Right. right, you're not going to be doing any welding or assembly. No. <laughs> no, it'll be more about getting to move, getting to to go around the vehicle and see different sides of it, 
having like really big windows or probably have cameras built in so that you can take your own photos while you're out there. I was going to say, yeah, you have to have the arm mobility to be able to take selfies. Mm-hmm. Uh, that would be big. <laughs> there are astronaut selfies, by the way, outside. In sp- I, my, uh, my friend Joe Tanner is an astronaut um, who works here in Colorado. Um, he took probably the first spacewalking selfie um, because there, it's, uh, it was a big mirror he was installing, and, the, and the re- his own reflection is in the photo. You can I actually see I've the camera in the photo because it's in a reflection. Yeah, it's a very famous photo that he took. Right. Um, it's it's awesome. I mean, the the word selfie didn't exist when he did that ten or twelve years ago, but yeah, uh, it's it's an awesome photo. So uh, yeah, I mean, so there's a lot of different considerations when you have paying customers, and I think that also will drive a different kind of spacesuit development. I think it also will make spacesuits more personal for people. It'll get people thinking and talking about spacesuits in a way that doesn't really happen right now. And uh, it'll increase interest a lot because spacesuits are it's spa- I mean, spacesuit itself isn't even a technology. It's like hundreds and hundreds of technologies. Mm-hmm. So there's so much work to be done in it. And it's so complicated and it's it's so exotic and far removed from most people's daily lives that I you know, it's even more exotic than working on a spaceship. Um, and so it's a very niche field right now. And I have a feeling that once people have a little bit more access to that part of the world and that part of space travel, uh, there's going to be a lot more people interested in working on that stuff and improving it. Awesome. That's my hope. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, yeah, we've gone about 40 minutes now, so I think we're pretty good. Did you so have we're any about other... 10% of the way through the show, right? Yeah, exactly. Yes, yeah, so we're going to take a quick break and come back for hour two of, <laughs> <laughs> of our six-hour uh, space talk. Um, did you have any, any final thoughts, anything you want to leave on? I mean, I, I feel like... Like you said, this is a topic you could definitely talk about more, and maybe after people hear this, maybe they'll have questions, and we could even do sort of a a response uh, segment where you answer more questions about spacesuits. Um, all I'll say is if you, if if you like this, if you're interested in in seeing spacesuits in action, some really good movies to watch are, of course, Gravity. I mean, almost the entire movie is in a spacesuit, so I mean, it's it's incredible. That's it was my favorite movie of the year last year for really obvious reasons, but. Also, um, 2001 A Space Odyssey has a really great scene where Dave has to get back in, but he forgot his helmet. And that scene is is actually very realistic and also super scary and crazy the way he does it. Um, So I I definitely recommend that. There's some really good spacesuit stuff in there. There's also a great moonwalking scene where they're in spacesuits walking on the moon. Um, So that's really cool. And that was all done before we actually went to the moon. I know that and that movie is really amazing. Super realistic too. I mean, they yeah. had a lot of NASA consultants helping them make it accurate. Like, like that that movie obviously gets super weird, but all I mean, just how sort of predictive it was, I guess, uh, of what was to come is just kind of amazing. It is amazing, and uh, and then also um, probably wouldn't see this coming, but Star Trek: First Contact has a really great spacesuit scene where they have to go out and they have like these magnetic boots and they're walking on the outside of the Enterprise. And uh, it's a really scary scene because the Borg attack them while they're outside in their spacesuits, and it's all oh. very. It feels like very slow motion, and everything's kind of drifting, and and uh, it's really scary because they the Borg are out there with like I think Worf actually has his sword, which is insane. <laughs> <laughs> he actually like it at some points. Um, is there? There's worried worried that their suits are going to get punctured and that they're going to you know they'll lose their air. So uh, those are some good places to go if you want to see some really cool spacesuit scenes. Uh, and of course, you can you can do all kinds of web research and go find out more about them. But uh, you know, l- learn to love spacesuits. That's my that's my message. <laughs> there you go. They well, like you said, the it, 
Yeah, I mean, like you said, I, I think they they're uh, underappreciated. Mm-hmm. Um, so I know I've gained a new appreciation for them in just the past forty minutes. So oh, good. I, I think you've done your job. Good. <laughs> um, well, yeah, like I said, maybe we'll do a sort of a reaction segment if there's a lot of uh, further questions about spacesuits. So if you have those, um, you can tweet them to us. I'm okay soda. Uh, Johnny, what you're just what, at Johnny John? Metz. At Johnny Metz. No H, yeah. no Z. There you go. Um, you can email them to us. Um, connectivity at NintendoWorldReport.com is fine. And then there's even a uh, ongoing space questions uh, form post on the NWR forums you can find and post there. Um, yeah, just, you know, if you've got thoughts, let us know. Um, or even just questions about space in general for the next segment, even if they're not tied directly to spacesuits, that would be great. Totally. More questions, more questions we get, the sooner we'll probably do another one. So, yes. Yeah, the onus is on you, people. <laughs> That's <Yeah>. right. <laughs> So, all right, well, that will do it. So, Johnny, thanks, as always, for being here. I know I've got to twist your arm to get you to do these. I know. Well, thank you for listening to me go on and on and on. And thank you, everybody, for for listening to these and for all the great feedback we get. Um, I'm always, like, very pleasantly surprised at the positive comments that we get on these segments, and I I really like doing them, and I hope they're um, educational and fun to listen to. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I mean, I, I learn something every time, so I can say that they are all of those things. And, yeah, thank you, everyone who listens and enjoys these. And, um, yeah, we'll, we'll keep doing them. So, um, for Johnny, I'm Scott, and we will talk to you guys later. Bye-bye.